This is the Better Wealth Podcast with Caleb Williams. Hey everyone, in this special edition of the Better Wealth Podcast, I am actually going to be reading my book. Now, I just, the and asset was something that I just threw together and it was kind of a labor of love. And there's actually, I'll, I'll have an episode just talking about all the mistakes that I've made in writing this. But um, I, I didn't know it would be such a, like, a big success. And, and what I mean by that is it's not like, I think we have about over 2000 copies out, but like it's starting to pick up some, like people are starting to hear about it and people are like, Caleb, this is like a book that I like understood, or this taught me about money. And it's just like starting to get some of that feedback. Advisors are starting to buy like 50, hundred. We just sent out 60 uh, books to Canada. And it's just like, okay, wow. Like maybe I need to put in some time and like get an audio edition to this book. Now here's, here's the deal. This book is going to get rewritten and the reason it's going to get rewritten. And again, I was never, I was never intending, uh, on this thing going and being used by other people. I was just, I was just going to use it internally for the people that was interested to hear what we did. Um, but it, you know, really, if I, if this is going to be hit the main stage and, and if we're going to try to really blow this thing up, it needs to be written a little bit different. I need to give credit where credit is due and just really like go through it and, and just ask a question like, okay, now like a lot's changed. Like I've, I've like changed, not I wouldn't say change my opinions about money, but like I've just said things a little bit differently. So really I am, I am going through a rewrite and in the process of rewriting we're actually going to do an audible edition which if you're like me that's like that's awesome right because i hate to read and i know there's many of you that are like caleb if this is on audible i would totally i would totally uh listen to it uh but i'm just not going to read the book and i respect that so i'm gonna what i'm gonna do and it might be painful for you guys but i'm gonna go through this this whole book and I'm I'm gonna read some of it. I'm gonna I've highlighted some of it. I'm gonna just talk through. And this is not like a substitute. Like still read my book, go buy my book. Uh, but if you're not going to, or or if you've already read it and want to get a different perspective, I guarantee you there's gonna be a different perspective in hearing me and my thoughts on this. But uh, I'm also I'm not over, gonna overthink it. I mean I don't know if you guys have tried to record recorded something or have tried to like talk into a camera is sometimes you can overthink the whole thing and I'm just gonna have a lot of fun with this guys this will change your life like the reason I can say that is I didn't really come up with like most of these concepts are not something that I directly came up with but they're a combination of the best things that I've learned and I've had the pleasure of learning from some insane people like people that really get this whole thing this whole money thing this the people that really get how wealth works, people that really just understand how money in general works. And just, I've compiled it together and I'm really, really excited uh, to do this. So I'm going to, without further ado, I'm going to get, get right in. I hope you enjoy. Introduction. So I I really start the introduction with, with asking uh, you, the reader or you, the listener, if money wasn't an issue at all, what, what would you be doing? And I want you to start thinking through, like, what would that be? And the reason I ask that question is that's when we really start uncovering the why. See, this book has a lot to do with money. Okay, I'm I'm literally going to be walking through efficiency, compounding control. It's going to be awesome, and it's like it's it's going to really be one of the best books that you read that get a, a fundamental like understanding of how money works. And I'm really excited about it. But the reason I start with the introduction is if you don't know your why, if you don't know what you would do if money wasn't an issue, if you don't know what drives you, if you can't define financial success, then none of this matters. 
And, and, and I really say this sincerely. The reason I start with the introduction is when I started in this whole financial service business, like I would get so focused on the product. And I, and I would assume that if people understood the power of what I was sharing with them, the power of what's in this book, they'll be a client. There's like no way that they wouldn't be. But I realized that I wasn't doing a good enough job understanding their why and I wasn't doing a good enough job explaining my why. And and so that's the first part is really getting to understand your why and understanding yet yes this book is going to teach you a lot of things about money. But in a sense this book has nothing to do with money, it has everything to do with pursuing what you want when what you want out of life. The other thing that I want to just mention that I mentioned in the introduction is this idea of you being your greatest asset. So many people devalue themselves in the way that they think about their money because they don't see themselves as their greatest asset. Like people don't value themselves when you think about what they do with their time and money. If you are your greatest asset, we have to understand that what your why is. We have to understand that you are your greatest asset. We also have to understand that I uh, had a dilemma and you might have the same dilemma. This dilemma was between someday in the future and now in the present. See, when I was in the process of, even before I, when I was in the process of like learning all the stuff that I wrote about, I was 19, 20 years old. And I had this, this, this dream of like being an entrepreneur someday and like investing in real estate and doing all this kind of stuff. And I was also learning from school, the power of compound growth. And I was starting to understand how Roth IRAs work. And there was this dilemma of like now or in the future, like control my money, use my money today or lock it up and grow it for the future. And, and this book has a lot to do with that dilemma. It has, and another way to say it is what versus how. A lot of books, a lot of people are going to tell you what to do. Think about it. There are books out there that tell you to invest in real estate. There's books out there that break down how to do the stock market. There's so many gurus out there that telling you to do this with your money, that with your money, be an entrepreneur, like be, go into sales. And, and by the way, all that stuff is good. But if you don't know, like, okay, so yeah, all that's good. And it's important that you know your why and it's important that you value yourself. But this book is simply going to show you what you, like, whatever you want to do, we're going to show you a better way. And like, I want that to sink in. So whatever you want to do, whether you, you identify yourself as an entrepreneur, whether you are have an amazing job, whether you want to get into real estate, whether you want to get into option trading, whatever you want to do, this book will show you a better way to do it because we're going to break down the principles of how money works. And and really the reason why it's called the and asset is an, it's an and conversation. And so the last part is I, I break down who this book is for. I talk about the entrepreneur. If you're an entrepreneur, you need to read this book because your business is your number one investment. And this is the, I, I believe entrepreneurs are the one of the most misserved or underserved people in, in just this this country, this world, because there's there's not a lot of people addressing what you should be doing with your money. If you're an investor, you're going to want to read this book because this will enhance your investments throughout your life. If you're making a lot of money and you can't like contribute to a Roth IRA and you're getting crushed with taxes, understand this book because we're addressing taxes. We're addressing better places to save your money. We're addressing where high performers that make a lot of money can go. Now, you might be inexperienced. You might be saying like, oh my goodness, like I don't even know what he's talking about right now. You need to read this book because I'm going to do my very best to break this down. And even if you feel like you're not experienced at all, like you, like uh, you're going to gain some valuable insights and you might have to listen to this recording or actually read the actual book. <laughs> so and you might be experienced in being like, hey, I know everything there is to know about everything. And I'll say this, one of the best compliments I got is I have a friend who uh, is just, yeah, he's awesome. And he's big into option trading, doing some amazing things. And he reached out to me and said, Caleb, like after reading your book, I learned things about money. And this guy is a freaking option trader, like helping like that. That was like, wow, like 
that that really meant the world. And and I would I would put him in someone that knows ten times more about money than I do. And he read this book and and got some valuable insights. Um, maybe you're nearing retirement. You're like, okay, first of all, the kid that wrote this book, me, looks like he's 15 years old. How in the world will this apply to me uh, in retirement? Well, that's that's true. Like I I'd, I've never gone like went through the quote unquote retirement stage, but I've uh, in working with the bank, there's a lot of people that were nearing retirement, and I saw a lot of the problems. And if you're nearing retirement, you need to read this book because we're going to uncover some of the things that will literally give you and maximize your money and keep your money safe and help you protect your legacy and assets. And if you're nearing retirement, like you need you need this book. And um, that's all I'm going to say. Your family. What if you're a family and you're just like trying to get ahead? You like you need this book because I'm going to show you how you guys can live your life, ma- invest in your family, but with also saving, making sure that you're doing the right thing. And and finally, the amount of time that people tell me that they're in debt or they have crippling debt. If you're in debt, you need to read this book because I'm going to show you a better way to save for the future and pay off your debt in the present. And it's not something that I learned overnight, but it's super profound and it's going to change your life. If you're struggling with debt, there are better ways, there's strategies, there's tactics. Remember how, if you have a goal in mind, there's always a better, more efficient way to do that. And so in summary, we want to make sure that, you know, make, write down your why, get really, really clear. If money wasn't an issue, what would you, what would you be doing? Like what, what in the, what in the world would you be doing? understand that you are your greatest asset. There's this dilemma between someday in the future and now in the present. We're going to eliminate that dilemma, eliminate that false choice, and we're going to get really, really clear. It's not what you do, but it's how you do it. For instance, this book is not going to tell you to change what you want to do. It's just going to show you a better way to do it. And uh, whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you just feel super depressed, full of debt, this book is going to help you uh, get to the next level. Right. Chapter one, financial freedom, what it is and how to obtain it. So Robert Kiyosaki for me was the one that really put this out and made it real for me. So financial freedom, he defines financial freedom or financial independence as having enough passive income coming in that you don't have to work like it covers your expenses. And and so I want to unpack that. So you're financially free when you don't have to work and you have enough money coming in passively, meaning you're, you're not actually earning it. It's passively coming in for you to cover your expenses. Now, I think that's great because a lot of people are going and pursuing this like number or like, you know, if I just had a million dollars, I'll be financially free. Well, not necessarily. Um, you could be less, it could be more. That doesn't really determine your ability to like have money passively coming in. Now, I want to take this as next step, you know, and, and it's this idea of like, okay, ex- like having your lifestyle just covered seems kind of shallow. Seems kind of like, okay, let's think bigger. So what if you, okay, go back to your why, because hopefully you wrote it down. Hopefully like you paused it while I was talking about the introduction and wrote down your why. And now I want you to think financial freedom is where you have money coming in that you don't have to work for that will allow you to live that why. And quite frankly, if, if I, if you don't learn anything else and all you do is get clarity on your why and you understand that financial freedom is when you're able to live that most purest way, that's powerful. Now, there's another thing that I would just want to warn you, and this is actually something that I added um, and will be added to the next edition of the book, is this idea of ROR. Most people, when they think of ROR, think of rate of return. And I, I mean, I think rate of return is great, and it's 
ultimately what what's the function of opportunity cost, which we're going to get into. I think opportunity cost is one of the most profound things as it relates to our money. But ROR or rate of return is also kind of shallow when you think about it. So many people are like giving up their hopes, dreams. So many people are turning off their brain just because someone will say that something will get a better rate of return. It's not even guaranteed, but let's even say it is like legit. So many people are sacrificing what they want to do, sacrificing their why, under, like not pursuing financial freedom because of this this rate of return, you know, carrot that is dangled in front of their their head. And I just want you to rethink the word rate of return. What if it was ROR stood for return on result? Like if you know where you're going, if you understand that you are your greatest asset, if you have clarity on that, whatever you do with your money and time need to represent a better way to reach that result. And the reason I'm not going to write a book and tell you what to pursue is that's different for each person because every single person has a unique individual why. But once once we have clarity on that, this book will help you get that kind of result. And I, I just want to I just want to like reframe this idea of rate of return because it's so deceptive and people are literally sacrificing their whole hopes and dreams for this one thing. And and so that was just kind of an aha moment for me is like I am in the business of helping people get the result that they're looking for. And so the other thing is when we think about this idea of you being your greatest asset, we got to think about uh, value economy. And value economy essentially is when like money follows value. So when you go to work or when you are an entrepreneur, you're doing something of value, money will follow that. It might not follow it immediately, but but you have to think like even the wealthiest people in the world, like let's look at, you know, Jeff Bezos or, or Warren Buffett. Like you have to think of all the companies that they own or in, in Jeff's, Jeff's scenario, he like owns a portion of Amazon. And Amazon, I mean, I'm looking around my office. I have so many things from Amazon. And so he's creating massive value for me. And so because of that massive value, he's also one of the wealthiest people in the world. And so again, on a micro scale, we have to think not only of ourselves as our greatest asset, but that money follows value. Now, here's the deal. So I, I uh, broke down this this famous example that Albert Einstein talks about, E equals MC squared. And to be completely frank, my, my dad's listening to this, he'd be very disappointed in me. Uh, but I don't even know what that means, like E equals MC squared. It has something to do with physics. I'm, I'm, like, I'm sure I learned it some, sometime in school. But it's actually a perfect idea of a wealth equation because Everything that we're doing. So if you have a clarity on why, if you understand that you are your greatest asset, if we understand we want to get return on result, then we then ultimately efficiency has everything to do with that. Like efficiency is helping you get the result quicker. Like if you're efficient with your time, you can accomplish all the things that you want to accomplish in less time. Why aren't we talking about being efficient with our money? And E equals MC squared. The E stands for efficiency. And what our goal in this whole book is, okay, if E equals efficiency and our goal is to be efficient, then let's have our money. We want to maximize or optimize our money. And the two ways, the two C's, C number one stands for compounding. We're going to have a whole chapter on the power of compounding our money. But then the other C is control. And I and I think most people, well, I, I know for a fact, most people are not controlling their money the way that they should. And so if you take this idea of compounding and control and you, you just zoom this whole E equals MC squared. So if you write this down, efficiency equals our money maximized. M could stand for money or maximize compounding and control. That's our goal. Our goal is to help you be super, super efficient. My goal is as you listen to this, like you can, you can finish this audio recording and have clear 
takeaways on how you can be more efficient out of your life. All right, chapter two is all about efficiency. Now, I, I kind of open this up with an example that I got from Don Blanton. And the example is this idea of club versus swing. Now, imagine you're playing golf and you could have the very best club of any any golfer. Like, think about it. You could have the, I don't even know what the best club is, maybe like a, you know, Callaway or Titleist or whatever. So you can have the very best club or you could have the very best swing of your favorite golfer. Which would you choose? Now, you would choose the swing in a heartbeat because we, if you've played golf or if you played any kind of sport, you realize that there's a process like that, that you can get a nice club and, and still be a terrible golfer. Like, trust me, I know. Uh, and so I like this, this example is really beautiful because a lot of people are out there pitching products. At the end of the day, the and asset itself, like that's, I'm going to be sharing with you where I think you should put your money. But I'm intentionally talking about the process first because this is way more important than having the best product. Like no matter what product you have, this this truly, truly matters. Is understanding the swing is far more important than the product. Um, I'm going to go off script. I've already gone off script, but Robert Kiyosaki goes into this idea of there's no such thing as a bad investment. There's just bad investors. I want you to think about that because someone might come to me and be like, hey, real estate's terrible investment. Well, okay, like there's a lot of billionaires and millionaires that have made their money because of real estate. But if you're going to ask me, is real estate a good investment? I can't answer that because I don't know because uh, it all depends on, you know, you. And so that's that's the first thing. And, and so it's really getting clear on this idea of club versus swing. We have to focus on the swing. Now, the other example that I that I use, and I actually got this from my friends in Birmingham, Russ and Joey, is this idea of gas mileage. Now, when you go and shop for a car and you look at the sticker, there's like city, city mileage and highway mileage. And, and most often, I would I would say across the board, the highway mileage is a lot like you get way more, you know, bang for your buck. So as far as like, you know, let's say it's 20, 20 miles per hour highway, like you have 20 miles to the gallon highway and 15 city. Why is that? Well, it's because highway is being more efficient. You're, you're actually going faster. You're like getting getting to where you need to go faster, but you're not stopping and starting. And most people with their wealth, with their life are, are literally, think about you driving from New York to California. And instead of going straight, you're going through every little city on the way. That's how most people are doing. Like that's how most people are thinking and handling with their money. And that's just another example of we need to be super efficient. Now, I'm going to bring, I'm going to name drop Warren Buffett because Warren Buffett has two rules to investing. Rule number one is don't lose money. And rule number two is listen to rule number one. Now, when we think about efficiency or inefficiency or our goal is efficiency, but we're going to now talk about the inefficiencies that you have. So many people are losing money. You're either losing money that you don't even know or you're like, like you're risking your money or doing something with your money that's that there occurs a, a loss. Now, there's two phrases that I want to introduce to you, and and again, I've learned this from Don Blanton, but I I've learned this from so many people. Like, and and when you think about these two phrases, like I want this to be ingrained because again, if all you do is like if you like listen to this and be like I can't stand this guy, well, at least you're gonna leave with some valuable valuable insights. The first thing is wealth transfer. Now, a wealth transfer is any time 
you transfer wealth away. Warren Buffett's number one rule, don't lose money. Number two, listen to rule number one. Anytime you transfer wealth away, that there's that's bad, right? And so we want to uncover all the potential wealth transfers in your life. By the way, it could be that you're a spender, that you, that you can't hold on to money, but it could be other things that you don't even you don't even think that matter that much. But we're always like we're always on this pursuit of like there well, let me say this another way. There's always things going after our money to try to transfer it away. Now, the second phrase that I want you to write down is opportunity cost. So wealth transfers when you lose that dollar, but opportunity cost is what that dollar could have been worth over your lifetime. For instance, if opportunity cost, by you listening to this, you are unable to do something else. I mean, you might be walking or running or whatever, you're working out or um, in the car, but by you listening to this, you are not able to listen to something else or do something else. That's a that's an example of opportunity cost. Uh, wealth opportunity cost is whenever you transfer money away, good or bad. By the way, this could be awesome, right? But whenever you make a financial decision, whether you know about it or it's a loss, there's consequences to that decision. Another way to say that is a dollar loss today is never able to earn for you ever again. When you lose a dollar, that dollar is never able to grow for you again. The reason I feel like a broken record is this is super, super important. We have to understand that every financial decision, every decision we make in our life has a consequence. And we just got to own that. And so the the four, the, I'm going to kind of go into a couple examples of us being inefficient. And, and the first one is investment loss. And in that, like every man, like so many people are risking their money. And Todd Langford was the one that pointed this out to me. He said, Caleb, like when, when people are transferring or taking risks, we think when we think like higher risk, we think of higher reward. Like you may have even finished my sentence. Like, oh, like the higher risk, the higher reward. Well, the a definition of risk is your chance of loss. So let's re- reverse engineer that. Your greater chance for loss is your greater reward. Like why in the world? Like, but uh, what some people will say is, oh, you're young, so you can, you can afford to take a bigger risk. Seriously, does that even make sense? Like, should we, like, what does Warren Buffett say? Don't lose money. And yet we're like all over this place and we, we assume that a greater risk comes with re- a greater reward. But if you really tra- backtrack to the wealthy pe- the people that are creating wealth, they're not necessarily just risking their money. They're, they're taking calculated steps and they're profiting because of it. So I, I first, the first deal is we have to sacrifice this idea of um, taking risks to get a reward. The other thing that I'm going to mention in this is this idea of average versus actual. Now, when we say like, oh, the S&P over the next over 30 years averaged 12% or in my in my book, I later have a, over a 19 year time period, the S&P averaged over 8%. But the actual rate of return could be very different. The, an extreme example of this is if you have $100 and you give me 100%. Okay, so so I take your $100, I make 100% because I'm amazing, right? And that $100 goes to 200. Okay, so now you have $200. Now the next year, I, I'm less amazing and I lose 50%. So now your $200 goes back down to 100. Well, Here's the deal. We just averaged you 25%. 100%, 50%, 50 divided by 2, 25%. That's just math. But the actual rate of return was zero. How can that be? Well, it happens all the time. And we just have to understand like the actual rate of return. It's far more important because that's, that's actually what matters. The second thing that I want to talk about is fees. Now, I, I would say this. There are a lot of people that get crushed with fees and some people have given me feedback and they're like, Caleb, reading your book, like you talk about this 2% fee. And the reason I do that is like there, there are many people paying more than 2% fees, maybe not stated, but like when you add up 
all the kind of fees. Like I'm talking, I'm talking about your advisor that you're paying the mutual funds, what they cost, like the, the administrative fees, like each fund has people that are running it. Like you're like, there's a reason wall street's profiting. How do you think they're profiting? Like you're not, not just your advisors getting paid, but other people are figuring out to get paid. So there's, there's a lot of fees now in all, all honesty, there, there's people that are paying less than 2% fee. The purpose of this is to just prove a point. And I pretty much break this down and, and talk about the damaging effects of a 2% fee. I mean, oh my goodness, like there are so many problems with with fees and, and how it just totally erodes our money. If you think of just like a 2% fee on an 8% gain, you know, you could lose anywhere from 25 to 50% of your growth. And it, you know, it just can take so much time to double. And, and it's just like, we just have to be we just have to understand that a 2% fee, think about it like you're putting your money in a bucket and there's holes in the bucket. And the idea is, okay, that fee might be the wealth transfer, but the opportunity cost is that money's never able to grow for you ever again. I skipped around, so I missed taxes. Taxes is uh, before fees, but we'll just say it's number three, is the tax loss. And what's interesting is this. In 1913, there was a, a, you know, this idea of temporary tax that was proposed to never exceed 7%. And I hope you're laughing because we're paying a lot more than 7% now. And while 1913, they they just thought, you know, let's, let's, you know, just throw this out there and, and see what happens. We have been entitled and addicted to this idea of income tax. And the, the one thing I just, I want to point out a couple things. Number one is I believe wholeheartedly that this could be the biggest wealth transfer that we experience in our country is, is due to taxes. So that's, that's like, just highlight that because um, just every time you pay an unnecessary tax now or in the future, you're not just paying consequences now, but it's what that dollar could have earned you the rest of your life. The other thing I want to talk about is the threshold and tax bracket. So we all, we always like to talk about, oh, like I'm in this bracket or I'm in this bracket or I'm not in the highest bracket. And it's important that we understand brackets, but it's also important that like, yeah, not only can we change the tax rate up or down, but we can also change the the threshold. For example, I'm just going to be super, super basic. Let's say a million dollars was in the top tax rate. So if you're making more than a million dollars, now some of your income's earning or having you have to pay out the top, top taxes. Now, the government doesn't necessarily have to raise the rates to earn money. They could just drop that threshold down to 500000 So now anything above 500000 now you have to pay that, that top tax. So those are two examples that, that we need to be aware of. And the crazy thing is, if you look at where our country's at, it's kind of depressing. And I just I'm just throwing this out there because this is a really big thing that when I was writing this book and, you know, learning from amazing experts, I'm realizing that very few people are are, you know, making decisions with their money with the realization that taxes could go way up. And so I just believe uh, in that wholeheartedly and and I think we also have to understand the difference between a tax deferred account versus like a taxable or tax-free account. Like tax deferred accounts what that really is, is you're not taking responsibility of tax today and you're postponing it to an unknown future. Like, I want that to sink in. Like, taxes, they you might think they're high now, but let me, like, if we look at historically, historical rates, they're not high. And what you're doing is you're giving up total control over your money and you're hoping that the taxes are going to be less. You're hoping that you're going to make less money and that taxes aren't going to raise and the threshold's not going to raise. And I just, I just want to ask you, like, I think that's, that's 
could be a very inefficient way to not only use your money today, but, you know, save or invest your money for the future. So understand that tax deferred accounts, these are 401ks, IRAs, anything that gives you a, a benefit today, there's a cost in the future that the scary thing is you don't know what that cost really is. So that's uh, my, my two cents on taxes. I just want to add this idea of wealth transfer due to use. So there's four, okay? I, I in my book, I talk about me you know, buying my first car. It was 2011 Ford Fusion. I still have it to this day, actually. And this car was, you know, a great car. It was super reliable. And I thought I was a rock star because I paid cash for it. Like I did what everyone said I should do, right? I saved up money and I paid cash for it. But in, in the process of like learning all this stuff about money, I realized that, that that Ford Fusion actually cost me a lot more than what I think I paid like $10,000 for it. It actually cost me a lot more than $10,000. Because that $10,000 that I paid cash for it will never earn for me ever again. So it's one thing like, yes, you lose your money due to market losses or you you lose your money due to fees or you lose your money due to taxes. Like none of us want to pay those things. But realize our greatest financial need is using money and math is unemotional. It doesn't matter if you lose it via loss or you use it, that money's no longer able to grow for you. So we just have to understand that. And then we also have to understand that most financial planners, most financial strategies will say that compound interest is such an amazing thing, but they like, you're using your money. You're literally killing the goose that's laying the golden egg. And I think also that's problematic. So I just, again, want to throw that out there. Like it could be, you could be using your money very inefficiently and there could be better ways to be efficient. And the reason I'm saying all this stuff is when I start talking about the solution, like I want you to go back to every single one of these because um, I didn't just come to a a simple conclusion. Like this was a, this was a journey and a process of me understanding how money works. And, and so that's kind of why I'm doing this audible or audio edition. So then I go on to the club. So we talked about the process. We talked about, you know, opportunity costs. We talked about wealth transfer. Every time you transfer money away, regardless if it's if it's a loss, you pay an unnecessary tax fee or use it. You don't just lose that dollar. You lose what that dollar could have earned the rest of your life. Remember, opportunity cost is such an important thing. But now we're going to talk about you know, in this section, okay, where you put your money. And this is really key because I'm going to give you 16 ideal benefits that need to go into wherever you put your money, whether you think my book and solution is amazing or not, like these are the things that you need to start considering as it relates to how we use our money or where we put our money. So I'm going to go through the six benefits, 16 benefits. I'm going to try to explain it, but I also know that um, I can't spend two hours explaining it, which I very easily could. So the first benefit is safety. You don't want your money to suffer any losses. Benefit number two is liquidity. Uh, liquidity pretty much means that you have your money is accessible for not only emergencies, but opportunities. So for each one of these, these benefits, I want you to in your head, or as you're listening to this, maybe you're writing this down, start rating, like how important is this benefit to me? Because again, we're all, we all love rate of return, but rate of return is just one out of the 16 benefits. So number one, safety. Number two, liquidity. Number three is growth. Okay. Rate of return. We want our money to multiply. This is important. What value do you put on the growth of your money? Number four is leverageable. We want to be able to leverage our money. This is what I'm going to get into this later, but being able to leverage our money is really, really key. Number five is inflation protection. You know, this is this is something that in an ideal in, investment, or an ideal place that we put our money, our money won't be eroded by inflation. Uh, number six is guarantees. What's the value of having your money like guaranteed to be there and guaranteed to grow? Number seven, free of fees. 
We just talked about the damaging effects of fees. It, wouldn't it be awesome if you could put your money in a place that had zero fees? Number eight, free regulation. Your money uh, is not restricted in any way. How awesome would that be? Number nine, flexible. You, know, you can fund this account whenever it works for you. So especially if you're an entrepreneur or if you're someone that has seen the ups and downs of life, we want to make sure that there's flexibility built into any anything that we put our money in. Number 10, requires minimal time. This may or may not be a big value for you. But for me, this is like, I don't want something that I have to actively manage every day. I want something in this ideal world. It's, it gives me all these things and I don't have to put much time into it. Passive cash flow goes back to Robert Kiyosaki's definition of um, having your money come in without you having to work for it. Number 12, private. Your money will grow without any restrictions and it's also creditor protection. So think about this. What's the value of having your money off the radar of creditors to go and steal your money or sue you for money. There's some value there. Number 13 is protection. And think about this. What if there's an account that actually protected you, like kind of had this insurance kind of benefit of like, listen, like if something happens to you, like there's going to be some protection aspects. How valuable would that be? And then we're going to get into 14, 15, and 16 are all tax benefit. So the first 14 is tax deductible, meaning if you put money into this account, your money gets uh, you get a deduction, you get a benefit, you get to write that off of your of paying taxes. Well, that's a benefit. So, so what's the value of, of getting to deduct your money this year for your taxes? Number 15 is having tax-free growth. That means once your money's in that account, your money will grow the rest of your life without paying taxes. That's, that's a benefit. And number 16, tax-free distribution, or I'm going to add tax-free use. What's the benefit of being able to use your money in the future with not paying taxes? Whether taxes go up, double, whatever, you're not affected by that. And again, these are 16 benefits. I encourage you to get the book or, or figure, like write these down because whatever decision you make with your money, like understand that there's more than just rate of return or more than just one benefit. Like our money is three-dimensional. Think about our money being, well, it could be 16-dimensional. I don't even know how that looks like, but it's 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 not just a, a simple, this is what you do with your money. And you're gonna notice the in my verbiage, I talk a lot about maximize because I think, again, I want people to just maximize everything. Like I want you to, I want you to win so badly. I want you, I want you with your time and your money to just maximize and, and squeeze all the benefits out, as many benefits as you can to get the result that you want to get. I want to finish this, this uh, efficiency chapter with this idea of, you know, this kind of painful picture of you trying to get to where you want to go. So let's, let's say this. You have clarity on where you want to go and you're in a car. You're in like your favorite car and you're like pressing metal pedal to the metal, but you're also your other foot's on the brake. Yeah, it's a painful picture. And that's what a lot of people are doing with their life. That's what a lot of people are doing with their money. They know exactly where they want to go. And that's awesome. That's like the first first big thing. But then they're like being inefficient and that inefficiency showing up like you stomping on the brake while you're trying to get ahead. And that, that word picture is really what I just want to like let you know that any any unnecessary wealth transfer has a cost to it and that cost it will cost you now but it also costs you in the future so let's make sure that we commit to efficiency that's it's just a really really important shit section so it, it was long thank you for listening but chapter two is all about maximizing optimizing the efficiency in your life all right so number three is all about the most efficient way to buy a house and I actually wasn't going to put this in the book, but it was after sitting down with someone who actually decided not to be a client of mine. This was like, you know, in the process probably uh, over a year ago. And it, the big thing was they wanted to pay off their house first. And I was like, man, 
that makes no sense in the world. But then I realized it's not their fault. It's actually my fault because I'm not communicating this well. And so I'm like, okay, this is definitely going into the chapter. And it really goes into the efficiency aspect because everything that we do with our money, we have to be efficient. So whether we save our money, invest our money, or whether we use our money, it's efficiency. So, So chapter three is all about, it's not about whether you should buy a house or not. Remember, it's not, I'm not arguing buy a house or rent. I'm saying if you're going to buy a house, here's some things to think about as it relates to efficiency. Now, the three things that I'm going to do, I'm going to look at is wealth transfer, opportunity costs, and control. So we want to look at how to minimize losses in this decision. We want to look at how to maximize future growth in this decision. And we want to um, look at the security because a lot of people say, yes, Caleb, but like our home, we have this emotional attachment. So obviously we want to be in control and secure. And I think I'll lay out a pretty, um, an argument that will be pretty solid against what you may think to be true. Okay. So for this example, we're going to say the price of the house is 250,000. This could be 2.5 million. This could be less. This could be a $25,000 house, I guess. Um, but we're just going to say it's 250,000. You have 250,000 cash available. Again, you might not have the amount of money to pay cash for the car or for, for the house. Remember, this is just an example. And the best way to prove this is like if you could pay cash for that or, or if you're not, like, that's how we're going to break this down. Number three is you can get a 30-year loan at 4%. Okay, so you have $250,000 cash available. You can get a 30-year loan uh, at 4%. Um, and you can access, number four is you can access an investment that will give you a 4% return on your money. Okay, those are the four players. $250,000 house, you have $250,000 of cash that can earn 4%. You can also get a 30-year loan that earns, uh, that you have to pay 4%. So you have two options. The option number one is pay cash. So let's say you pay $250,000 of cash for that house and you take the monthly payment you were going to be paying the bank, $1,189 to be exact, and you invest it in earning 4% steadily over 30 years. This way you end up with $828,374 in cash and a paid off house. So let me say that in English. (laughs) You pay cash for their house, and then you take the payment that you were going to pay the bank, you put it in that investment that earned 4%, and you end up with $828,374. Okay? So that's, that's, that's scenario number one. Hey, option number two is you finance your house. You, you pay 4% and save the $250,000 in the account that earns 4%. After 30 years, you would have also earned the exact same $828,000 three hundred and thirty four dollars same as the as option one and and you'd have a paid off house so mathematically the results are the same but practically never this never happens because it requires the buyer to stay in the house for 30 years it also requires the cash buyer to pay themselves faithfully for 30 years which is very very unlikely so now let's okay so what I'm pretty much saying for those math people out there is mathematically it's like if you're earning and paying the same, and and you and you're diligent and paying yourself and it's it's like a wash with opportunity costs associated it's exactly the same but you got to like no one ever does this so so option 1 and option 2 are exactly mathematically the same but now we're going to go into like okay efficiency wise let's let's put our efficiency hat on and actually see what happens so the first thing that i want to look at is 
payments. Okay, so number one, the idea of the most efficient way to pay uh, pay for a house is payment. So most people end up doing whatever it takes to make their mortgage payment. The nature of financing is that you are obligated to pay that money back. The same is is not true for savings. If you pay cash for your house, there are no payments required for you. In this example, you would need to save one thousand one hundred eighty nine dollars every month for thirty years to pay yourself back. That's to- that's a total of over four hundred and twenty nine. $28,000. Okay. That's a lot of money. If you paid cash for the house, um, how likely would you be able to pay the entire amount of entire amount back to yourself over 30 years? In, in which situation would you be most likely to exercise the discipline to necessarily make, make that payment? For instance, would you be, it would be, would it be easier to pay the, what the bank or pay yourself? It's just a question. Uh, the concept of efficiency is used in this book doesn't tell you the answer to this one. It's something that you have to answer for yourself. So this one, I'm pretty much saying a wash. I'm saying that most people uh, would pay the bank before they would be more di- diligent. But hey, you might be super diligent. Maybe that's why you're listening to this. You're diligent. You're listening to me ramble. So, all right. So number two, tax benefits. There's some this is big, you guys, okay? Uh, there can be some very beneficial tax advantages to a mortgage. For some, this could be the only benefits that they receive uh, tax-wise. Efficiency demands that you qualify and weigh the potential tax benefits of financing. Tax laws can change, and it has changed recently, so it's not an exact science, but you can make a reasonable assumption concerning the money you could save in taxes over the next 30 years. So by earning a mortgage, you can pay, you can potentially get a tax benefit for the interest. Now, I know some states that might be capped, but there's a benefit to that. So, you know, so as it relates to tax advantage advantages, efficiency comes solidly on the side of financing. All right, house value. The value of your house may increase or decrease over time. By the way, this is a really big, so pay attention. The value of your house may increase or decrease over time. One uh, reason people choose to purchase versus rent is in the chance that they're, they can build equity in their property. But as many experienced in 2008, houses sharply, uh, house, houses sharply uh, fell in value, uh, and that was unexpectedly. So what's the rate of return does the equity in your house earn? Regardless of how it's paid for, your house will increase or decrease in value the same. Okay. So regardless if you pay cash for it or you finance it, it's going to increase or decrease. It's not, it's not going to affect the value of the house. Benefit of paying cash is not having to pay interest to a financial institution. However, a cash buyer is going to lock up a large portion of their capital and slash net worth in their house. Meanwhile, the person that finances has that same house. But instead of locking up their money, they can let it grow and use it in other activities. How you pay for your house is unrelated to its value. With regards to a house value, efficiency is solidly on the side of financing. So again, because of my reading struggles, I don't know if that was came out as clearly as possible, but think about this. So whether you have a, your house is going to grow or decrease in value, it doesn't, doesn't matter how you pay for it. The person A that puts all their money in their house whether it goes up or goes down, that's that's it. Person B who puts their money somewhere else that they can c- control it and it, their house goes up or down, like now they have their money not only growing for them, but they actually have the ability to do something else with their money. And and by the way, like I just think 
that's a huge advantage. Um, I would rather have control of my money and have the ability to do things with it versus for it to be stuck in the house. And the fourth thing is inflation. Now, inflation is the force that makes our dollars less valuable over time. Your dollar today is valuable, is as valuable as it will ever be because of inflation. If you acquire a 30-year mortgage as shown previously, your payment would be $1,189, okay? Now, using a 2% inflation rate in 15 years, that $1,000 one hundred and eighty nine dollar payment would have the buying power of eight hundred and eighty three dollars. And in thirty years that one thousand one hundred and eighty nine dollar mortgage payment would have the buying power of six hundred and fifty six dollars. A long term fixed mortgage can be a fantastic hedge against inflation. So that that alone just tells you the power of having um, a mortgage payment like your dollars. You're literally have you're living in a house and you're paying for it and those dollars are getting less and less valuable, but your payment doesn't go up. That's amazing. Now, number five, earning interest versus paying interest. In the example, uh, in our example, the interest you would pay the bank on on two hundred fifty thousand dollar loan over thirty years at four percent is one hundred seventy eight thousand forty dollars. Okay, that's a it's a lot of money. Okay. So you're almost paying for that house twice. The interest you would have paid if you invested your $250,000 in for 30 years at 4% is $578,374. That's a lot more than what you've paid. It is good to use your money to, it, so here's my question. Is it good to use 178000 in order to earn more than 578000 Efficiency says yes. Now, based on the spread between what you pay in interest and what you make in interest, financing the home is more efficient, therefore can be more profitable decision. Now, I, my friends that like understand the math, again, I opened up this chapter by saying op- with tying an opportunity cost, it's exactly the same. But this is saying your $250,000 is going to grow for the next 30 years. It would grow. It, you would earn $578,000 of interest. And if you had to pay that $250,000 over 30 years because your 4% is earning on a smaller balance, the interest that you would pay to the institution or banking institution would be 178000 That's a big, big spread. And that, again, was that was a big aha moment for me. It's like, wow, that's... I, thought it was a wash because I never really thought about that. Okay, next benefit is opportunity cost. If you pay cash for a house in this example, you tie up those funds for 30 years. However, if you finance the house, you uh, have $250,000 available for the opportunities you can find to create. So for instance, if you feel like yourself as an entrepreneur, if you think of opportunities or, or if you can answer the question, in the next 30 years, I will have some kind of opportunity that I can invest and earn greater than 4% opportunity cost has to be factored in. Do you think in the next 30 years, um, with a little bit of help and direction, you will be able to make 4%? And if you're working with me, I hope the answer is yes, because I hope by just being in my presence, I help you think and, and get you to think about opportunities that you can earn more than 4%. And so I would say control and having access to that money is far more important than having your money tied up in your house where you can't access and control it. So as far as opportunity cost goes, I think financing is way more efficient. Okay. Now the big, big one. Now, big one is security. I, man, there's so many people that come to me and I'm like, Caleb, like I get the math, the math 100% agree, but security. I would just feel so much better to sleep at sleep at night knowing that I don't have a mortgage on my house. And at the end of the day, I respect that. But I want to, I just want you to hear me out here. When we think about security, there's really two things that will happen, you know, that really can affect you losing our house. Number one is losing our job. Or number two 
is getting some kind of disability or, you know, maybe a premature death or something that happens to us. Okay. That's, those are the two big risk losing, losing our income or getting something unexpected that just crushes us. Let me ask you a question. If you had a paid off house, but no money, or would you rather have 250,000 plus and the ability to maybe pay the mortgage and also have money to maybe live like buy groceries? So, so we, we assume that a paid off mortgage, there's that sense of security, but I think having money control over money is way more secure. Cause yeah, you can pay the mortgage. What if you, what if you had enough money? What if you had $300,000 in an account and you could pay the mortgage for the next 30 years if you wanted? Okay. So that's, that's great. But then what, like when this, when you lose your job or when something happens to you, the mortgage is one thing that you need to worry about, but there's other things that go into it. And like, you can't go back to the bank and say, Hey bank, like, I paid off my house and I did an awesome job. Can I have that money back? And they're going to say, dude, like you have no job or you're disabled. And unfortunately, banks are a profitable institution. So they're like, no. So it's all about being more in control and security. And I don't know if I did a good job explaining this, but like you have way more control if you have access to that money. I'm not saying put your money into Wall Street's casino. I'm saying you have way more control over your money if you have access to that money. So just, again, something to think about because um, that's key. So really, in, in summary, how you pay for your house matters. And there's there's a more efficient way to pay for your house. And I'm, and I'm going to make the argument that paying cash is not necessarily the most efficient way to pay for your house. You're going to pay less in interest. Yes, you are. You're going to pay zero in interest if you pay cash. But you're not only going to miss the over half a million dollars of interest that your $250,000 could earn and all the other benefits, you're less secure because all your money's tied up in the house. Inflation is uh, not going to be working. Like you're, like you're, you're literally, your dollars are going to get less valuable. And um, it, like, I think inflation is key. I don't think you're going to have the discipline to pay yourself. There's no, you get no tax advantages. Your house value doesn't change regardless. And so in all, in all honesty, rethink the way that you're paying for your house and uh, hopefully this was a helpful exercise. All right, we made it to section two. Uh, this is chapter four. Congratulations for keep listening. I guarantee you this is going to be an amazing, amazing section. All right, so the chapter title is called Uninterrupted Compounding. And, and I'll say this, since writing this book, I've gotten really, 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 really clear on the importance of lifetime compounding. I say uninterrupted compounding, lifetime uninterrupted compounding. Like, oh my goodness, like we need to commit, like you need to promise me right now, like promise me this, that we want to commit. If we're going to commit to a compounding strategy, we need to commit to a lifetime uninterrupted, meaning there's no interruptions that are going to happen to our money for the rest of our life. And if you can commit to that, there are strategies that allow you to do that. It's going to be very, very, very powerful. Kind of going back to E equals MC squared, we're going into the first C. So get excited. This is C number one is compounding. Now, really, the power of compounding is this amazing thing. Now, I sort of quote, I say, Albert Einstein is noted for saying that compound interest is the eighth one of the world. It's since in writing this, I've realized that he never said that. He was actually misquoted for saying that compounding numbers is this like exponential eighth wonder of the world thing. But here's the deal. Compound interest is amazing because it's a long-term exponential thing. Let me define what compounding actually is. It's, it's where your money, there's like three things that go into compounding. It's where your money will grow and so your money experiences interest rate over a long period of time. And what happens is the interest that you 
earn on your money that you put in gets added to that account. And then next year, that interest is not only earned on the money that you put in, but it's earned on that interest. And every single year, you're earning interest on not only an ever, you're just earning interest on an ever increasing principal. So that 4% on your original amount, that 4% is going to go a long ways 20 years from now. Okay, 30 years from now, 50 years from now. So compounding is this amazing thing. It really takes money, takes interest rate, and takes time. This is kind of considered this eighth wonder of the world. But but and to illustrate the eighth wonder of the world, I want to talk about an extreme example, which I'll call the penny example. Now the penny example is is really this. I come to you and say, all right, I'm going to give you a million dollars today, or I'm going to double the penny for the next 30 days. And whatever that number is after doubling for 30 days, you can get what would you choose? Now, most people, if they're being honest, would choose a million dollars and run. But because you're listening to this book, and you know that there's a catch or an example here, you probably take the doubling penny. That doubling penny is essentially going to grow to over 5.3 million. And in the book, I talk, I, sh- I show a graph. And it, like you can see, like, you know, day one, you have a penny. Day two, you have two, four, eight. Like you get all the way, like you get through, what is this? 12 days, 13, 14 days, and you haven't even broke a hundred. But, but again, exponentially, your, your doubling number, it's just, it's just really, really powerful. So um, you get to 5.3 million bucks. Now, if we just stop there, I'm like, okay, that, that proves to you that, you know, this is an amazing thing. But really, the reason I'm writing this is so many people might turn their brain off and they say like, oh, like I'm getting compound growth. But they're, the problem is most people are never, ever, ever going to get the compounding growth working for them, period. Like the power, this powerful exponential growth of compounding is not going to be working for most people because of what I call compounding killers. And I, I literally have a title in, in within this chapter of don't disrespect the eighth wonder. I highlighted it so I would remember to say it. And it's like most people will never have this amazing thing because they're disrespecting the eighth wonder of the world. They're disrespecting the long-term compound growth. They're literally killing the goose that's laying the golden egg. Whether it's investment, loss, taxes, fees, the use of money, regardless of what that is. Remember we talked about wealth transfer? Like we're transferring wealth away and that doesn't just have a cost today. It has a cost long-term. And understanding compound interest and the power of it, when we lose money and that's never able to compound, that's how we understand true opportunity cost. Sorry that I'm getting excited, but it's like this really ticks me off when people like don't get this working for them because it's such an amazing thing and it's a no-brainer. We can, there are strategies out there that can get you this. You just got to know, you just got to have the knowledge to take advantage of it. And so again, let's look at this. Here is a quick review on the wealth transfers. Losses. Every time you lose a dollar, you don't just lose that dollar, you lose it, the dollar could burn the rest of your life. What are Warren Buffett's two rules? Don't lose your money and listen to rule number one. Number two, taxes. Man, like so many people are going to lose their shirt on taxes, whether it's now or in the future. Understand that there's risk and that this could be the biggest wealth transfer that you experience in your life. Number three is fees. Not only do you have fees, um, you know, impede on growth, but it, it works against you as you make more money. Like the more, it's like a, it's like a silent tax. The more money you make, um, the more money you have, the more you're taxed. And finally, it's the use of money. Anytime you use a dollar, whether it's a good thing, maybe it's an investment, maybe it's to invest in a marketing strategy or buy a car or go on that vacation. Every time you use a dollar, you don't just lose that dollar, you lose what that dollar could earn you the rest of your life. That's math. And so here's the deal. 
let's let's expand the penny example. There's nothing working against you. Let's assume there's something working against you. So um, this exponential amazing thing. Okay, so let's first of all imagine the next 30 days, day 5, 15, and 25, your penny does not double. This represents the loss that you'll have. Now, we're not. it's not negative, but your penny's not doubling. Um, the, you're going to find that your 5.3 million bucks is going to drop to 670,000. Now I'm rounding to the nearest number because I don't think the nearest dollar really matters, but your 5.3 million dollars drops to $670,000. Only three times of your money not doubling. This re- We're not even losing money, but this is representing every time you have a loss, you reset that compounding curve. Now let's also consider taxes. In the same example, you pay a 15% tax on the growth of your money. This 15% tax would be reduced your account from 5.3 million to a little over half a million to be $559,000 to be exact. A 15% tax that every, every time instead of getting 100%, you're getting 85% drops your money from 5.3 million to a little over half a million. It's crazy. Now let's assume you have a 2% fee, okay? Now this is this is only a 2% fee, okay? We're only taking 2% of your 100% every single um, time. That 2% fee would take your account from 5.3 million to 2.9 million bucks. Let's just, let's round up to three. It eats up it eats up over $2.3 million, just a 2% fee. I, I need that to sink in. Now, here's the deal. Most people don't just experience one of these things. They experience losses, taxes, fees, and they also experience use. But I, if I put that, it would have a negative number. So I'm just going to assume that you never want to use your money, even though that's why you're doing this in the first place. But let's assume that you have losses, taxes, and fees. You have you know three times that penny doesn't double. You have a 15% tax on the growth, and you have a 2% fee. Your $5.3 million would drop down to a little over $51,000. So let me ask you, <laughs> would you take the million dollars? See, see, we judge the person that took a million bucks. Let's be honest. Like we're like, oh, like they don't understand what's going on, but they're the true winners because what I didn't tell you is in this penny example, you had, you, there were three times where your money wasn't going to double. There's a 15% tax and a 2% fee. My point is in our own money, we have this working against us. Whether you want to call it headwinds, whether you want to call it compound eroders, which is, I think, a word that I made up, or compound killers, there there are so many things that are going after and attacking our money and not giving us the ability to have it grow. This next section, I call it compared to what? I want to give uh, credit to Todd Langford because Todd Langford is the owner and author, uh, or not author, but he's the owner of Truth Concepts Calculator, and I've learned so much from this guy. Like... I've gotten my finance and, and money from Todd, and I'm super grateful for this. So, Todd, I'm not sure if you're ever going to listen to this, um, but thank you. And so, he pretty much says, okay, when we talk about a 4% rate of return, like I'll, I'll just say, like, let's assume we could earn 4%. A lot of people will say, oh, 4% is terrible. And the answer that Todd comes back with is compared to what? Like, it's terrible compared to what? They're like, oh, well, compared to the average, averaging what I'm getting in my 401k. Okay, well, we'll take an example. And, and by the way, I picked this 19-year-old, 19 period of time over the S&P. The S&P, for those of you that don't know, is just the, the 500 largest uh, stocks 
and and it's a common strategy to just invest in the S&P, just buy a low cost, low fee index fund. And I will say this, if you're just going, if you're set on the stock market, this, this is typically the best approach is to put your money in an index fund. But let's say we're going to take an example and I'm trying to figure out where this is from. We're going to take a time period from 1998 to 2016. Okay. It's a 19 year time period. And we're, the reason I picked this time period is that's where the S&P averaged 8%. Okay. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the same example of the actual rate of return. So in, instead of, of looking like we're, we're now going to factor in, okay, it averaged 8%, but the actual rate of return, when you look at over that time, if you had $100 invested or $1,000 invested, you would have you would only have earned 6.45%. So I know we're talking about a lot of numbers here, but let's say over the 19 year period of time, you put in a thousand bucks. If you had your, if you had 8% that return every single year, you would have $4,316, okay? But if you put your money $1,000 over that 19 year period of time, instead of having $4,316, you would only have $3,278 because the actual rate of return was 6.45%. Okay. Number two, we're going to look at taxes. We're going to assume that you have to pay 15% taxes. Now, instead of having 4.3 or $4,316, your money would have dropped down to $2,446 when you assume adding on a 15% tax bracket. Now your actual rate of return is 4.82%. And that, again, we're including 6.54% that your actual rate of return, and then we're including the 15%. So that brings it down to 4.82%. All right, now we're inc- going to include a 2% fee, which drops that 4.8% down to 2.94%. In summary, you would, instead of having $4,316, if your average was real, you now have a total of $1,734. I need that to sink in because so many of us are toting, oh, yeah, we're averaging this, and we're actually not getting anywhere close to that. So let me ask you, is 4%... Is that good or bad? Well, I'm not going to go out and say it's amazing, but compared to this, if you had this scenario and you were saying, oh, the S&P averaged 8%, that's way better than 4%. Well, compared to what? What if that 4% was tax-free after fees and wasn't, wasn't you know subject to loss? That 4% may be better. And so this is what I really want you to commit to. I wrote down eight things to think about for this chapter. Will your money be safe as it earns lifetime compounding? Number two, do you have a strategy to best use your money without hurting its lifetime growth? Number three, does your money have any guarantees to get lifetime compounding? Number four, how are fees being factored in to your wealth? Number five, is your lifetime compounding potential impacted by government or regulation? Number six, is lifetime compounding passive or does it take active management? Because by the way, one thing I didn't add in this chapter, so a lot of people that mess it up, like if you try to get involved, emotion gets in the way. Number seven, will your lifetime compounding continue to grow if someone something happens to you like a disability or death? Number eight, how will taxes present or future affect your lifetime compounding? Man, if you have an answer to all eight of those, that would be awesome. I'm going to end with this idea of our world being flat because I know that's going to keep have you keep listening. But there's there's a difference between earning versus paying. And like we have to understand, you know, I talked about the power of compound growth. And then we have to look at, you know, simple interest versus amortized interest. And just real quick, simple interest is when your money is like earning, like if you have a thousand bucks and you're going to earn 4%, you're going to earn 4% on that thousand bucks. And the next year you're going to earn 4% on that thousand bucks. It's not an exponential 
growth. Amortized interest is when you're actually paying money and at four, you have a thousand bucks, but you're actually paying for it. So that thousand dollars is going decreasing in value. So, you know, scenario number one, your interest is 40,000 or 40, $40, but maybe 10 years from now, your 4% is on a hundred because you're paying that down. And now you're, your 4% is actually um, $4, okay? So it's just an example of a decreasing interest rate. The example that I wanna give and end this is asking the question, is the world flat around? And the reason I I mention this or and bring this up is so many people are, well, let me, I mean, it's obviously the world's round. I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna leave you hanging. Like I believe the world is round. But you could prove to me or I could prove to you that the world's flat depending on how we measure. Like I could go outside. I, I'm recording this from Denver, Colorado, but I could go outside and I could find a flat piece of earth, even in Denver, and say, listen, these two feet are flat, completely flat. This proves that the world is flat, which in that, using that logic, you would be correct. But if you zoom out, it's obvious that the world is round. My point is this, is so many people, when they think of compound uh, lifetime compound strategies, they don't want to commit to the lifetime piece. They see compound growth, but they don't want to commit to a, long, a long-term strategy. And if we just look at short-term, compounding doesn't seem that impressive. There may It might not even look that key. But if, I promise you, if you commit to this thing being long-term, it's going to pay massive dividends for you. It's going to be, it's going to totally pay off. And so again, the world is round, but it depends on how you measure it. If we're measuring a compounding strategy, let's make sure that we have a long-term perspective as it relates to our money. All right. Congratulations, guys, by the way. Like, this is some good, good stuff. Uh, Chapter five is mastering unhindered control. Now, I just spent a lot of time in the last chapter laying out why compounding is so amazing and why no one's getting it and just just some things to think about even i i just encourage you to listen to those last eight questions again because you know those questions are really going to address what's what's working for you and what's not but i just built up compound interest and i I want you to know that compounding is this like passive long-term strategy it's amazing long-term right it is so let's commit to it but i'm also going to potentially you know, contradict myself in this chapter because explosive control is what creates wealth. Like if you really want to understand how the wealthy are getting wealthier, they understand this aspect of control. Like the banks, the wealthy of this country, the corporations, they're not making their money on compounding. In fact, they're they're paying interest. They're paying compound interest, if you want to say, on our money so they can control our money. We have to understand that there's a importance of controlling our money. I'll go back to if you are your greatest asset, understand what makes you tick. If you're your greatest asset and you own a business, understand how your business ticks. Like understand that you are your greatest asset. I'll go back to this idea of you devalue yourself. Most people go throughout their whole life devaluing, not putting a value on themselves. And as, as a result, we are so easily just totally offer up and give up control. And I'm, I'm getting emotional because I don't like it. Like I want people to understand that controlling your money is this incredible thing. And and if you look through the lens of control, you you don't just see like your money as savings. You'll see you want to see it as capital. It's not just your savings sitting there growing, waiting to be used someday in the future. It's capital that represents your greatest opportunity for reaching your highest potential and accomplishing your why. And and remember this: your greatest financial need is using your money. Think about it. Think think about what I just said. Your greatest financial need is using money. How many people to up until this point, besides me, have been showing you a better way to use your money? 
Think about that because you use a whole lot more money than you save. You will use far more money than you save. I'm like skipping ahead. Like I'm literally saying it and then it, I'm reading it. Uh, you will use far more money than you save. So, so learning how you use your money will have a great effect than saving, um, than saving more. So like understanding how you use the money in your life and making that efficient could be, be by default, you could be uh, far ahead. So I'll just say this, if you know, compound interest may be the eighth one in the world, if it's credited, um, it's even not, it's not even Albert Einstein never said that, but let's say he did. I'm going to consider the ninth wonder unhindered control. Okay. Now I'm going to talk about this idea of investing in the center. And I use Mark Zuckerberg in my example. And I think my next, you know, writing of this book, I'm going to actually use Warren Buffett because whether you think of uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, or, or, um, Warren Buffett, they all have made their wealth not on compound interest. The reason I want to use Warren Buffett is he's, he's noted for being like the greatest stock market investor of all time. But guys, think about this. Warren Buffett has the, has the majority share in Berkshire Hathaway. Okay, that's his that's his company that literally buys all these kind of companies. So he has the majority share of Berkshire Hathaway and he buys companies and is can be ruthless, but he buys companies, comes in and you know, because they have specialized knowledge because he's brilliant, he makes them more profitable. He literally flips companies. That's how Warren Buffett makes money. And yes, he does that and exponentially he's making money. But he's doing he far he's way more in control. And he's, and he's created his, he's become one of the wealthiest people in the world, not based on compound interest, but based on his ability to control over a long period of time, which has an exponential feature to it. Man, isn't this stuff good? Like we need to understand investing at the center. And my point is a lot of people are like, okay, let me ask you this. Do you have, if you own a Facebook share, like let's say you own a stock of Facebook, who's more in control, Mark Zuckerberg or you? Mark, because not only does he own a lot more shares than you, but he actually is in control of that. Same, same goes to anything. Like we have to ask her a question. Like, you know, if you, if you have clarity on your why, if you know what results you want to get, let's get, let's get clear on that. And let's make sure that we're dealing with our money. We're using our money in a way that aligns with that. So now I'm going to go through what I call the big nine. These are like the nine levers that you need to start asking yourself as it relates to your money. And these, again, are, are big. And I'm going to go into depth because I, I think they're really, really key. And the first thing is keep your money safe. So number one, these are nine areas that you need to be in control that you need to address. And the first thing is keeping your money safe. Again, rate of return, rate of return, rate of return, rate of return. Everyone's talking about rate of return, but remember, risk equals chance of loss. So what's, how, how in control of you are you of your money, like of your money getting lost? Since writing this book, I want to go into kind of a quick story. It's like I have experienced, seen firsthand the negative effects of loss. And the thing that made me most sick is I had no control over that situation. And I just remember the feeling of saying, I don't ever want to be put in a situation where I have no control and literally seeing this money disappear because of someone else's mismanagement of that opportunity. And I just want that to sink in like, okay, number one is keeping your money safe. How in control are you of keeping that money safe? Number two is keeping your money liquid. The liquidity, remember, is the accessible nature of our money. So the explosive profit potential that that may come across um, in your life, like, are you going to even have money available? Think about 2008. If you had money and you were, had specialized knowledge in real estate and you had money and 2008 happened and houses were, you know, going for pennies on the dollar, think about the opportunity you'd have. You you would have so much opportunity to get in and make a killing but again, if you don't have liquidity or access to your money, 
that means nothing. Um, Nelson Nash, a, a dear mentor of mine who has since passed away, had had the following statement. He said, those people that have access to capital opportunities will seek them out. And if you think about if you think about this, if you have money, not only does that maybe give you the peace of mind to start thinking abundantly and thinking through opportunities, but it, you you have the opportunity to jump on something if something comes across. Like if a if an investment comes your way or a business comes your way or just, I mean, let's take money out of it. Let's say an opportunity to impact someone's life. If you don't have any money, like you can't do that. But the person that has access to capital and has capital can do amazing things. And so um, with that, so many institutions, whether it's companies, that's why they go. That's why they sell stocks. By the way, people, companies sell stocks to get capital. Banks, banks will give you interest rate to get your capital. Every, if you think about the institutions, what do they want? They want your money, and they're going to give you some promise. If compound interest, and I'm using my quotation marks, if compound interest is so amazing. Why would why would companies give it to you in order to control your money? Control is so important, and and so we, when you think about it. The longer we give up control, the higher interest rate we get normally. And so institutions want our money for as long as they can. And so we should look at that, model that and say, why why do institutions value control? So number two is keep your money liquid to have access to it. Number three is to keep your money leverageable. Leverage is, my goodness, is a very misunderstood concept. And this is what I'll say is this is where banks have made a killing. They understand how to leverage their money. But even like... Even what I'm doing here, this is okay. This I came up with this on the spot. Like I am leveraging my time because I am pouring my heart and soul into this microphone, okay? And I'm speaking, and you're listening to this, but I'm not speaking to you. And who knows why you listening to this? There might be someone on the on 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 a you know ten thousand miles away from you listening to this, and hundreds and thousands and even millions of people could listen to this. And I'm not speaking to those people. I'm leveraging my time by by one time saying this and speaking into this, and multiple people can listen. Same thing goes with our money. It's it's kind of like um, you know getting a better bang for a buck. Now, in thinking of leverage. You, you, the, the example that I like to use is banks. Okay. Banks, let's say I give a bank a hundred dollars. Okay. I give the bank a hundred dollars and the bank will then pay me 1% because they're generous. Right. So I, so the bank's investment in mathematically, now I, I guarantee you like there's, there's other expenses to the bank. So this is not like the gospel here, but like the bank gives me one, 1%. So I get a dollar. Okay, that's the bank's investment. Now they're going to take my money. They're going to leverage my money and loan it out to you. Let's just say, and they're going to charge 4%. Okay. Now the, the average person, when they, they hear that is going to say the bank made 3% on their money, which it depends. It doesn't seem that, that great, but the bank actually made 300% because of leverage. Their investment was $1 and they made three. So in this idea of, of that, I hope that sunk in like, and, and, and this idea of leverage is like, you're, you're a little lever. If you think about it, can make a huge difference. If you have massive leverage, you can you can do something at the same effort, but you can because you have leverage, it just works for you. So, um, so hopefully, the idea of leverage is important. The reason I'm so big on this is I was I didn't even know that this is a function, and I realized most wealth is created because people get this idea of leverage. Okay, and so we have to understand control cost. And we just have to understand when I say control cost, it's like if you can control capital at, let's say, 5%, say it costs you $5 for every $100 that you can control. And by controlling capital, you can earn 12%. Is that a good investment? Is that a good deal? Well, mathematically, you made 140%. 
because your your cost was 5%. That's $5 and you're earning 12. It's 140% return on your money. That is a, a good investment. Okay, number four is keeping your money private. We uh, live in a lawsuit happy world. What's the value of having your money off the radar screens of creditors? I just want that to sink in because again, we get so focused on rate of return, but what if that whole rate of return is subject to someone you know, losing their cool and suing you? Or, or what if the government decides to raise taxes and just take your money? You know, is your money protected from that? How much control do you have? Um, but there are, you know, there are places that you, your money can grow that are off the radar screen of creditors, off the radar screen of the government. And again, this is, this is so important that I added it into the nine elements of control. All right. N- number five is to protect your money from taxes. You literally can't afford to try to build significant wealth without um, aggressively and effectively uh, an effective tax strategy. It ought to be your goal to have as much of your money growing tax-free as possible. Plain and simple. If you don't have control over future taxes, if you think about this, what most people are doing I, I talked about having access to your money. Most people are saying, oh, I'm going to put my money in an account. I am going to give up total control. So I can't even access my money without getting penalized. And when I do access my money someday in the future, I'm going to have to pay a tax on whatever that is. Talk about someone that has no control over their money. Like the government, like depending on who's elected, like I would be worried about the elections because someone could get elected into office that could totally change the game overnight. Sign of a pen, taxes double. And now all that time that you giving up control and taking the risk of that money and paying fees is going to go into the government's hand. It's just, again, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist here. I just want to, I just want to point out the fact that most people have no control over, over taxes. And that's huge. And, and another thing that I say is I, I, I talk in the book, I, I'm like so afraid of offending people when I wrote this book and I, and I shared in the book, I said, okay, so if you invest over the match, you might want to consider, like, I'm just really like, I just want to be everyone's friend, right? Um, so if you invest over the match of a 401k, you might want to consider like that could be inefficient because you're deferring or postponing tax. I'm just going to be straight up with you. If you believe that you are your greatest asset, what, what does the 401k offer you other than rate of return? Like, I know we're told to put our money in 401ks and I, I want to support that. And if that's something that you want to do, awesome. But like, what benefit does it actually give us? And when, when we think about like so many people are just giving up total access and control of their money into a 401k, locking it up, not only are you deferring tax, well, let's just say it's, it's, it's the tax isn't affected. It's, it's a problem. Okay. That's my mini 401k rant because the more and more I just, the more and more I, I start helping people and learning, I just think there's less and less reason why 401ks make sense. Okay. Number six is protect your money from fees. And again, I told you probably the biggest pushback that I've gotten from this book is like my, my example of 2% fee. But regardless, I just want you to know that there's administration expenses, there's advisory fees, there's, there's good, we can front load fees. We just got to be careful what fees we're experiencing throughout our life. And the reason why this is number six on the list is we just got to be, if we are aware of it, if we start tracking it, we just start controlling it way better. So we just got to be careful about the fees that we're paying throughout throughout our life. And you're paying a lot more than you think. You might not even be paying close to 2%, but you're paying more than you think because a lot of these things can be hidden and as a result can be super damaging. And and so there's two types of fees that I just want to address real quick. There's fixed fees and percentage-based fees. The fixed fee is kind of like you are going to pay a fee regardless if you have a million dollars or ten thousand dollars you're going to pay a fixed fee for instance we have a blueprint that we charge people as we help them help 
implement some of these powerful wealth strategies. Like I'm going to share this at the end, but the blueprint is amazing. And whether you have tons of money or whether you have like very little money, we charge a fixed cost for that. Because again, we don't want to penalize you. We don't want to tax you for, for ha- having more money. And that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem right. Percentage based fee is saying like, if you have $10,000 or a million dollars and you have to pay 1% fee, well, the person that has a million dollars is going to pay a lot more. Maybe for the same amount of service, but they're going to pay a lot more. So just understand within that, we, if we're going to have to pay a fee, which by the way, whether you pay me or someone else, you, we got to get paid. So there's some way that we get paid, but we just got to make that most efficient and it has to be in your favor. Okay. So yeah, hopefully that makes sense. All right. Number seven, protect your money from inflation and inflation produces an overall increase of, of the price of goods. So that's an idea of inflation. And we just got to be careful that like, if we're going to control our money, we need to protect our money from inflation. And it's, it's it, inflation. The reason why we have inflation, by the way, is our government's printing money. Like every single year we're printing more money, but, but a dollar, like, so for instance, let's say there's only a hundred dollars in the country. Okay. A hundred dollars, that hundred dollars is going to be valuable, right? Because the more people that we get, like we got to split up that hundred dollars, that hundred dollars is that value. But if, but if next year we print another hundred dollars, now we have $200, but the value of our dollars, the same dollar, but now we have more money, which makes the dollar less valuable. That's the idea of inflation. And we're not just, we're not just dealing with a hundred dollars here. We're, we're printing tons and tons of money. And so the Federal Reserve, after we went off the gold standard, is really printing more money. And as more money comes into the economy, that just makes our dollars less valuable. So we want to make sure that our money is not only growing, but we have like, if something happens to inflation, or if we experience hyperinflation, that our money won't be locked in a place where we're just getting crushed. Um, that's why Robert Kiyosaki talks about savers being losers. Person that just gives up their money and saves their money ultimately will end up losing if they don't have control because inflation could happen and your million dollars might be a lot of money to you now. But what if a million dollars was a year's worth of salary? Like again, 40 years ago, a million dollars was a lot of money. There will be a time where someone makes a million dollar in salary and that's not even going to be that much money. Think about that. Number eight is protect your money from restrictions and compulsions. It goes back to this idea of um, protecting your money from, from the government, but it's more so like, like what kind of financial vehicle out there? Like we want our money to be in a place where we can control and exercise control and not have it be subject to restrictions. And so for instance, like if you have your money in certain accounts, sometimes you lose the ability to access that money without a penalty. Like, how is that okay? Or what if like, yeah, like there's, there's restrictions to our money. Why are we saying okay to that? So we just got to be aware of that. We got to protect our money from those restrictions, whether it's government or whether it's just the plan restrictions and just understand that like people want our money. And again, I I don't want to, I want to be like a Debbie Downer here, but like people want our money. We just got to, we got to protect it. Now, number nine is protect uh, your human life value. And and I firmly believe this is the most important out of the nine because you are your greatest asset, okay? You're plain and simple. Like you are the most important investment you can make. And so we want to make sure that, remember the value economy, as you create more value, you're creating more money. And so many people are ensuring that if something happens to their house, which, you know, might maybe the largest quote unquote asset you own other than yourself. But if something happens to your car, we insure so many things. But if something happens to our ability to earn money, a lot of people are done. So think about the things that can hurt your ability to earn money, health problems. You could, you could have a health scare 
And that could, you know, prohibit your ability to maximize or optimize the money that you're going to make throughout your life. A disability, long-term care scare, like this, this could be, this could be um, damaging to your future and ultimately death. And, and the reason I, the reason I just say this is like, we have to start thinking about protecting the most important asset, which is ourselves. And Again, going back to people devaluing themselves, people are insuring their house, people are insuring their car, but they're not even insuring their most important asset, which is themselves. By the way, how insurance works is you can't be worth more dead than alive. You can't, you can't, if you have a million dollar house, you can't insure that for two million because you're going to incent, someone's going to be incentivized to burn it down as messed up as that is. If you're, if you're earning potential, that insurance companies say, oh, like your earning potential is a million dollars of your lifetime. They're not going to insure you for 10 million bucks. So, like you can't be worth more dead than alive. We want to make sure that we're protecting what we what we're setting out to accomplish in the first place. Don Blanton says this really really awesome is like life insurance. Believe it or not, is the only financial vehicle that allows what you want to happen will happen even if you die in the meantime. Disability insurance allows what you want to happen even if you get disabled. Long term care, uh, you know, if something happens to your long term, you know, if you have to go into a nursing home and you all that that decision just starts eating up all your assets that eliminates that health care is really important if something happens to your health are you going to wipe out all your money we have to understand that there are benefits to that so that's number nine understand that our human life values our ability to earn or max potential of our earnings we want to make sure that we protect that and i want to end control on this idea of asking the question what's the rate of return or what's the return on investment of a golf club Yes, you heard me. <laughs> What's the return on investment of a golf club? Now, if you're asking me, I uh, unless I'm golfing with a client and maybe are able to justify saying, oh, because it's quality time, I'm going to make money. If I were just going to golf, if I'm playing golf, I am losing money because I'm paying. I'm spending a lot of time. I am, maybe I'm getting good exercise. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll think better. But at the end of the day, I'm p- playing to play golf and I usually lose lose golf balls in the process. Okay. Now, if you're Phil Mickelson and you're an amazing golfer, the ROI of a golf club for you is going to be millions and millions of dollars because not only are you a good golfer and you're winning golf tournaments, but now that's giving you the ability to do commercials and speak. So the ROI of a golf club is how you use it. For me, I'm not that good of a golfer, so it's not that valuable. For Phil Mickelson, it's extremely valuable. When, I, when people ask me, Caleb, what's the rate of return of control in your life? I can't answer that because it depends. Depends on how like how like much control matters to you. Like if you're an amazing entrepreneur, if you like like the opportunities of taking a dollar and multiplying it, if you have specialized knowledge, it might be huge. Like ask ask Warren Buffett what's the what's the ROI of control in his life? Could be billions and billions of dollars. But I also have to understand that there's people here and if we don't get self-discipline or we don't know why we're doing it, control might not matter because if we don't know why it matters in the first place, then it may not be that valuable. The point is control is super, super important and I can't put a value on it because it it's different for each person. So that's the, the ROI of a golf club is just my example of uh, that idea. Right. Chapter six is taxes. And I remember in the process of writing this book, I was like, we were going to put taxes like in the efficiency chapter. And I'm telling you guys, I can't just make a statement that says taxes could be um, 
the biggest wealth transfer in your life and just write two or three paragraphs about it. So I, I dedicated this whole chapter six to just talking about taxes, but I want this to sink in. Now I open up this example. I'm going to try to read this. So let me uh, give you an example of a hypothetical financial situation. The situation I'm thinking of, of involves a person who earns $35,000 per year, but spends 40,000. Okay. So let's get this straight. You earn 35 K you spend 40. It's not looking good. As a result, the income slash expense gap, uh, they are incurring, incurring, um, they have to take out some debt. So this person also has $200,000 of credit card debt. Okay. Now my question is, would you agree with me that they are in poor financial state? Um, in order to get a better place, they would either need to dramatically increase their income or decrease spending. Again, 35,000, like they would have to spend a lot less than 35,000 or they need to make more money. And I'm, I, I'm a big fan of the, the latter. Um, so let me ask you a question. Would you take an investment advice from this person or hire them as a financial advisor? If they were in this situation, would you do that? Would it make sense to have this person, um, as a business partner? You know, how would you structure your money? Like, so like, okay, let's say this person, maybe you're not taking financial advice from them, but what if they want to go into business with you? Would you do that? I hope you're screaming. No way. There's no way in the world you would do that. And yet I'm going to make a bet that most of you listening to this, and yet there are millions of people doing the exact same thing with their money. If you add eight zeros to that person, you get the U.S. government. When I when writing this, the U.S. government um, was, you know, was earning about $3.5 trillion and spending about $4 trillion, and they are roughly four, uh, $20 trillion in debt. And I can tell you for a fact that we're way more than $20 trillion in debt. That's how exponentially our debt is increasing. And so you can go to usdebtclock.org to get really depressed. I, I literally, like, go there and you're going to be more depressed. But, like, look at look at that and then look at the unfunded liabilities because I think that's also pretty depressing. But 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 essentially... Any qualified plan that you put your money in, you are partnering with the government. Like, why do you think the government, why do you think the government, uh, let, let me say this. If the government comes up with these great ideas like 401ks or IRAs, like they're, they're even the Roth IRA is a government sponsored plan. If, if the government's in this situation, don't you think they have some kind of agenda behind it? Again, I, I'm sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but like the government is going to take our money and we're going to go back to this recording and I'm going to say, I told you so, but like, it's so obvious, like our government is hurting for money. We wouldn't, we don't want to take advice from someone who's super desperate because there's, their motives could be wrong. And I'm just saying our government is super desperate. So the problem is we are putting our money in tax deferred accounts. And let's see these as postponement plans. We're postponing our, our money, our future growth on a, you know, a day down the road. And, and so these plans represent tax sheltered. The, let me re-say that. These plans are, are represented as being tax sheltered, but they're not. They're not tax sheltered. They're they're think about their tax dungeons. Think about that. Like our money is literally locked up and we can't do anything with it. We're not sheltering our money from any tax. We're just deferring it. We're just postponing it. And I would argue to say the government's getting the the good end of the deal. So when we talk about the three stages of our life, whether it's growth, whether it's our income stage, or whether it's our legacy stage, we got to understand that taxes play a huge role in that. 
And again, so many people like the the common the common knowledge, by the way, is like, okay, you're making a lot of money. Taxes taxes are high now. Let's just defer when you're retired and poor. You can take out that money. They're not going to pay your taxes are going to be in a lower tax bracket. And again, mathematically, that could be true. Now, number one, the people that I work, I hope don't have that mentality that someday in the future that they're going to be poorer. I mean, that's not a really fun thing to think about. But the number two is we're assuming that nothing happens in the government. And I mean, in the in reading this right now, Trump's our president. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? My point is, I think there's a lot of people a couple of years ago that would say Trump would never have won president, and he is our president. And so just like that, we could swing to the other side of the fence, and there could be crazy things that go on on either side of the aisle that could really affect our money. And so we just got to understand that like, we can't assume the next 30 years are going to be the exact same. I think that's a really poor way to think about it. So I break down... Um, uh, some examples of just different ways to pound, get across, pound in your head that taxes are going to go up. Okay. So I talk about um, the first one is the unknown. And so I talk about the difference between the brackets and thresholds. And I talk about there being a lot of unknown things. And if you look at just in history, and you look at increases, increasing, our taxes increasing, and you look at just the history of like even what happened in world war, like inner wars where that we had to increase money. Like there's a lot of unknowns and the bracket can change and also the threshold can change. Uh, the second thing is the harvest. Now I love popcorn. <laughs> I, I eat popcorn almost every day because it's just so good. But uh, here's the deal. If you gave me, if we had a truck full of pop, popcorn seeds or, well, let, let me, Popcorn's a bad example, but I could still use popcorn. Um, let's say you have seeds that you want to go and plant. Let's say you have, you know, corn seeds, okay? You're going to actually plant corn. So you, you could pay the tax on that corn or you can pay the tax on the harvest, okay? I, I butchered that whole example, but the point is, would you rather pay tax on the small seed or the massive harvest? Most people would say, oh, the seed, but most people are doing the exact opposite with their money seed or harvest, which which would you rather pay? The third thing is the gamble. And the gamble is really represented to this idea of of postponing our tax to a, a time that we have no clue. And and also there's three big things that I'm gonna highlight that um like it's it's easy to look at our money now or look at our debt now and say this is a problem. But we gotta look at at the future. And so I'm going to, I, I highlighted a section for me to read. So to see the example of how tax rate and thresholds can be changed in order to cover what the government needs to fund, consider this. In 1941, the top individual tax rate was 81% and the highest threshold was 5 million. Okay. Meaning if you made more than $5 million, you'd pay 81%. A person in 1994 would, would, who made $200,000 could, uh, be reasonably com- uh, confident that they didn't need to worry about being in the higher tax bracket or paying the highest rate. Unfortunately for them, one year later, the government raised the top tax rate to 88% and the threshold was lowered down to 200000 Not only did the top wage earners have to pay more in taxes, but the threshold was lowered, lowered so considerably more people were added to the bracket. Why did the government make those uh, drastic changes in the tax code? The answer is can be boiled down to one word math. And speaking of math, you know, I'm again, I'm I'm just 
just pointing out time after time what I'm seeing here. And when we think about this, there's there's three things that need to happen. Remember when we went back to the family and said, okay, they, didn't, they need to do something different. They need to spend less, they need to earn more money, or they just need to like, their debt needs to go down quickly. So let's, let's, let's look at this, okay? Can debt be paid off? Like, let's look at the government. Can debt be paid off? When this book was being written, the national debt was approximately $20 trillion. I guarantee you it's higher right now. So go check usdebtclock.org and see what that is. Increasing by over $2 billion per day. These numbers can be so far beyond our ability to comprehend um, that we lose any real like meaning. And, and I feel like a lot of us are numb to this idea. The math, however, puts it pretty clear perspective and it's mathematically impossible for the government to just pay off their current debt as it is right now. So number two, can expenses be decreased? And I need you guys to take note of this. In, in 2016, roughly 76% of every dollar was needed to pay for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and interest on the national debt. The Government Accountability Office estimates that by 2020-20, it could take 92% of every dollar to fund those same line items, those four things, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and interest on the national debt. Like, I'm not even including what it costs to like keep our country safe. There's a powerful picture in, in on page 65 and it, and it shows a dollar and 25, 28% goes to social security, 28% goes to interest, 21% goes to Medicare and 15% goes to Medicaid. And that leaves 8% for everything else. Let me ask you this. Do you think the government can cut spending anytime soon? The answer is no. Can income be incre- increased? Okay, this is what's going to end up happening is the how does the government increase income? You know, how do we make more money? We make more money. How does the government make more money? Tax us more. I mean, as someone that doesn't believe in higher taxes, I'm saying this the only way for us to get out of this, this mess that we're in is either cut spending or increase taxation or figure out some kind of creative way to raise more money. And whatever that creative way is, that that's going to be through some kind of a tax. So again, guys, I am going back to this idea of of like things change, and you know, can the debt be paid off? It, uh, you know, this this again, I'm not saying this to be depressing. I'm just saying this like we need to start thinking that we're partnering with the government every time we do these plans. That's all. That's all. I'll, I'll end on that. I just want that to sink in, and just for you guys to start thinking about the future as it relates to the money that you're investing today. All right, chapter seven. And this one, you guys, is, is going to be a really, really key chapter. And this was one of my favorite ones to write. And uh, just just by understanding this, I've, I've just, again, elevated my uh, investor savviness to the next level. So um, banks... So banks are the most profitable business in the world. I think in my in my book I talk about I actually ask that question like what's the most profitable business in the world? It's banking. And and when when I was told that, I was I was working at a bank and I didn't even know this. Like I was working at a bank and how do banks make money? They control their institutions that control our money way better than us. That's how banks make money. And they that's why they have all the nice buildings. That's why they sponsor the football stadiums and soccer stadiums and basketball stadiums. Like that's why they have all the money. Person that has access to capital will always win. That's um, the, the golden rule. I learned this from Nelson Nash is this idea of uh, whoever has the gold makes the rules. And, and that's why the process of banking is the most profitable business in the world. And Nelson 
um, who's again, I dedicate this is one. I acknowledge him by being one of the f- the people that have taught me so much about money. He goes out and says that you know banks are the most profitable business in the world. Controlling capital is so important, and we have to understand how to make the banking function our own. And so I'm going to go through five benefits to what banks are doing and how we can apply it to our own life. And, and I need this to sink in because if we can get these five things instead of being mad at the bank and saying, oh, like the banks are evil. Like, guys, let's start becoming our own banker. Like, let's start understanding how we can do that. So uh, and, and you, even if you're working out or doing something like either take note of this or write these th- things down because these are going to be really, really key or better yet, buy my book <laughs> uh, and, you know, go along, follow along and on page 68. So uh, the first one is flow. Okay. Banks are experts. They're institutions that get money to flow to them. Think about it. We, we, we actually sometimes don't have to pay fees if we, if we opt into what's called direct deposit. And, and why do banks want that? Because they want as much money to flow into their control as possible, systematically, ongoing, like without even thinking about it. Like we want money to flow. So the idea of money flowing, um, why do you think 401k is like automatically, like a lot of companies automatically put you in. Wall Street wants your money to flow to them. Like again, every institution wants our money. They'll give us some kind of rate of return for the access and use of our money. So the first element that banks and how banks make money is they understand flow. Number two, leverage. We went through the example of the importance of leverage of, of the bank paying us one one dollar and uh, you know charging four percent. So they they pay us one percent, charge four percent. They they make three hundred percent ROI. And again, they have other expenses. They have to pay people. They have to pay. So they don't. They're not profiting three hundred percent. But just a simple leverage uh, is is what allows them to to make that. And I actually have a little chart that breaks that down. Like if you have a $100 investment and you earn 4%, you're, that's an ROI of 4%. But if you're a bank and pay one, $1 and earn three, you're actually 300%. So again, leverage is really important. Number three is liquidity. And if these kind of, these are gonna kind of like remind you, this is not gonna be the first time you hear some of this stuff because again, this it's I have to say things multiple times for us to get it. But number three is liquidity. The bank has all the money. It goes back to the golden rule. They have all the gold, so they get to make the rules. People come to them. Opportunities, when opportunities come, when we wanna buy a house, when we wanna buy a car that we can't necessarily afford, if we want to um, start a business, we're going to the bank. They're not like begging us to come. Like we're we're actually applying and they, they get to they get to control our money and, and make it miserable to sometimes get a bank loan. Think about that. Because they have liquidity and access to funds, everyone comes to them and bends over backwards to, you know, listen to whatever they say. Number four is collateral. So not only do the banks have all the money, they get to use leverage, they have all the money flowing to them, but then when they do loan out uh, their your money, when they loan out the money, they make you put up your house or car or business or your per- like promise that you're going to pay their money back. So think about how brilliant this is. They, it's not even their money. They get money to flow to them. They're, they're making money on leverage. And then they like, oh, by the way, like you're going to pay us back. And if you don't pay us back, we're going to take your house. They understand collateral, so they're not they're not even taking massive unnecessary risk. And number five, and this one is definitely the most profound out of the five, is understanding velocity. And um, this one, velocity, 
is the rate at which money is exchanged through one transaction to another. So think about it. The banks don't just make their money. They don't just sit on their money like what we're taught to do. Like, oh, put your money and let it sit there and, and you know, come back 30 years later. Like, no, they are institutions that need to flip their money multiple times. Working at a bank, I can I can share this with you. Like, we are we're always looking for opportunities to loan out that money or, or be a good steward of it. And if we're not, if we can't get enough loans, we're going to invest it in a safe investment because that money needs to be in motion. So think about this. Money in motion creates more money. And then that money in motion, when they loan out their money to me and I pay them back, they're, then they're taking that money and then they're loaning it right back out. Money in motion creates more money. So to kind of recap, this is going to be maybe the shortest chapter, but it's definitely the most profound, is the five elements to banking, flow, leverage, liquidity, collateral, and velocity. Understand that. Apply it in your own life. Trust me, we can become our own bankers if we get this and we do want to take the elements that has been working for the banks for a long time and apply it in our own lives. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are on section three, the controlled compounding strategy. And, and this is this is going to be interesting in the new writing of the book. I don't know how I'm, if I'm going to use the idea of controlled compounding. I really like it. Um, but... Yeah, this 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 is big. This is this is where when I learned this, by the way, this is where I decided I was gonna. Ha- I I committed to sharing with this with people. Like this is where I was like, there's gonna be a line outside the door. If people get that they can do this with their money, it's game over. So pay attention. It's chapter eight, controlled compounding. So uh, first of all, I want to introduce to you my big dilemma. Okay, so I'm 19, 20 years old. I'm going to school, learning about the power of compound interest. But I'm also like, I'm also reading books by like Robert Kiyosaki and Think and Grow Rich. And like, I'm starting to realize that controlling my money is, is maybe more important than compounding it. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but like you having like a, an, a, a dilemma between two really good things. Like in this, it's like, okay, I could lock up my money into a Roth IRA and have that money grow and you'll even be tax free as of as of right now by the way the government could change that but like could be tax-free and um that'd be awesome right or or i could make no money put my money in savings account um because the bank i was working with wasn't paying one percent and but but just by having that control if an opportunity like a real estate deal came up where i was i had a couple businesses that ended up failing but i was like well if this business takes off i need capital and so this dilemma and if you're an entrepreneur listening to this you get it like needing capital, having money is super important. And so there's like always this like we're hedging, right? Or like we're, should I save? Should I invest? Or should I like, should I keep my money over here? And we're always hedging one way or the other. And uh, the hedge is, hedge is really, really a problem. I want to introduce to you three type of people. Remember when I talked about that this book was not about what you do, rather it's how you do it. And I also made a statement that your greatest financial need is using money. And like, I really do mean that. So we're going to assume that you're going to, you're going to be like a normal person and use your money throughout your life. And, and so there's three types of people. There's what I'll call a debtor, saver, and maximizer. And I, and again, I got this example, this whole capital equivalent value conversation from Don Blanton. He this was this is really big for me. So the the debtor, saver, and maximizer um, are are representative of three people. Now the debtor, I, I show a picture of a of a line and and think about every time you go into debt, you're drawing that big line down and then every single year you're you're doing your best to pay that back. So it's kind of like a uh, like a like a stairway that's upside down. Okay, every you're going into debt, you're 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 buying things that you can't really afford. You're, you're going to school, you're buying a car that you can't afford, and you, you're over leveraged on a house and all this stuff. You don't have money, and at the end of the day, you're just getting crushed. Like you are a slave to that debtor. 
you're, you're a slave. You're, you have to work just to pay, just to get back. So you're paying interest ultimately to be broke someday. Person number two, listen to, you know, maybe some other people and we're like, okay, I'm not going to spend my whole life paying interest to be in debt. I'm on the other hand going to be a saver. And this is how I was raised. This was how most, most people, you know, that are quote unquote killing it are raised to, to think about money. It's save up money, pay cash for college. So this was me, save up money, pay cash for my first car, save up money, pay cash for college, save up money, finance um, your business, save up money, pay, pay for all the things throughout your life. And while you don't pay any interest, that saver, every time they pay cash, remember they're disrespecting the eighth one of the world. They're literally draining their money and their money's no longer ever able to grow for them ever again. Like no matter how young or old you are, do you understand the problem with that? Like, oh man, I you're getting me going. Like there are accounts that people save for college and then they take that money, transfer it to the college and that money's never able to grow for them ever again. Do you know how crazy that is? Do you know how crazy it is to pay cash for a car? Yes, that car doesn't cost you, like you don't pay any interest on that car, but that, that money is no longer able to grow for you or work for you ever again. So the saver doesn't pay any interest, but they lose interest. And that because we know what opportunity costs it looks like now, that's a huge, huge disadvantage. So yeah, I just want that to be really real and, and sink in. And the third thing, the third person, so we have the debtor, we have the saver, the maximizer takes their money and grows that money the rest of their life. Like they, they commit to a lifelong compound growth. They're going to put their money in a place and it's going to grow the rest of their life. And when they need to use capital, instead of taking out their money and disrespecting the eighth one of the world, they're going to borrow against it. And when they're going to borrow against it and their money's going to continue to grow. And this pretty much puts you in a place where every dollar that touches this account, every dollar that touches the strategy will grow, not just to retirement, but to the day that you die. And if you're going to utilize your money, you can be able to borrow against it. Now, remember when we talked about this idea of, you know, would you be willing in the house example, would you be willing to pay $178,000 to earn half a million? And, you know, yes. And yes, there's what I'm trying to say is like, mathematically, you could twist that and say like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty much saying, are you willing to pay a little bit of interest if your money can grow over a long period for your life? And especially I can show you the math. It's powerful. And the answer is yes, that's the most efficient way to do this. Remember, it's not what you do. It's how you do it. We're looking, we're, we're trying to lean into efficiency here and try to maximize that. And so they, this concept I got from Nelson Nash, oh man, this changed my life. You finance everything that you purchase. You either pay interest by purchasing uh, with a loan or credit, or you lose interest that you could have earned by paying cash. Think about this. Whether you, whether you pay interest or you lose interest, you're financing it. Either way, you're paying or losing something. And so the most efficient way is to do the controlled compounding strategy. And so I, I broke this down for you. Um, Pretty much think about this. It's your money. So think about this. We're, we're, we're breaking this down into three things. We're dealing with your money. You're dealing with an entity that you can borrow from and, and what you're going to purchase. So what you're going to purchase. Okay, I'm holding up my cell phone right now. Let's say I'm going to buy the cell phone. Let's say I have my money. And then instead of using my money to buy the cell phone, what if I use the institution and let my money continue to grow? Remember, it only works if your your money's doing something productive. Okay, so I actually, I'm going to try to read this. Um, it's the the process of controlled compounding is fairly simple. You place your funds into uh, what I'm going to call the master account. You place your funds into this account where your money will earn 
lifetime uninterrupted compound growth. Okay, that's point number one. So you put your money in place, it's going to grow the rest of your life. Number two, you identify what you may, uh, what asset or activity that you want to purchase. And I, I just add, like, if you're going to do that, make sure that you get a good rate of return. Okay, that's number two. So you got to figure out what you're going to purchase. Number three, you approach the lender that determines the potential term and, and you, you know, determine the potential terms for the loan. So, okay, can you give me a loan for 5% and I'll pay you back over a certain period of time. Then you use the lender's money in the form of a loan, leaving your money in your master account that's continuing to grow. And number five, over over time, you pay back the loan with amortized interest, okay, so, which is another way of saying as you pay back the loan, your the interest that your 5% interest, let's just say, is, is earning on a smaller balance, while your money, on the other hand, is continuing to grow. Control compounding can be incredible if used for an ROI positive activity, like investing in an asset or a business endeavor. And this is something that I've gotten clear since writing the book. It's talk about li- liability activities and asset li- activities. Asset-based activities are activities that put money back in your pocket. Okay, these are things that are productive to you, society, and your bank account. Liability activities are things that take money away from you. And again, as long as you know that, like for instance, you could have a liability activity that like a vacation that's really important. It's taking money away from you, but it's important. So you value it. But there's also, I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things that we do with our money that is just not super necessary. So in, in summary, I'm looking at a if if you have the book, go to page 80 and you see your money growing the rest of your life, you take a lien against that money and buy something, but your money's continuing to grow and you're paying interest on a decreasing or you're paying simple interest or uh, amortized interest while your money is, is compounding. It's an amazing, amazing thing. If if this, if by listening to this was tough, go get the, go get the book because the pictures alone are, are worth whatever you're going to pay for it. And um, it's really, really powerful. By the way, just, just a, a plug. I didn't even say this early on. You can go to andasset.com, A-N-D, asset, A-S-S, et.com and i'm i'm giving away the book for free i'm just asking people to pay the cost of getting them the book so it, it could be very effective and then and then you can also stay in touch because you'll be automatically on our email list if you do that so that's pretty awesome all of this has led up to one of the most powerful financial vehicles and assets and i'm really excited to share it with you Right. Chapter nine, creating your master account. Now, as I set out on a pursuit to find a better way for my clients, you have to understand that I was um, I was looking at everything. I, I had this agenda when I first started at the bank that I was going to be a stock broker and and just trade trade money and just like just make a killing. I like I like the whole option trading hedge fund thing. But but I realized that um, in, in the pursuit of finding a better way I consistently found a theme that banks were doing, corporations were doing, what my mentors were doing. And I, and you guys, when I tell you what this is, you're going to understand why I d- had a dilemma. Like I, I literally had a, a, a belief that what I'm about to share with you was the worst place to put your money. Like you would be better off digging a hole in the ground and putting it into that hole and burying it than putting it into this vehicle. That's how badly I hated this thing. And in the process of me learning this, I, because I had that belief, I'm able to come to you really authentically and really know what I'm talking about because I have done my due diligence and traveled the country and learned from so many people. And it's made me to the point where I felt like I needed to read, write this book because I, I don't think there's a ton of great resources out there at this point that point you to the power of this. And so 
Now, the way to build wealth is by maximizing the efficiency of your whole process. The way to maximize the efficiency of the whole process is, is to maximize every element. Remember, we talked about E equals MC squared. Like, I don't want to lose focus on this. Like, we need to be most efficient. And efficiency is making sure our money is, is getting maximized by the compounding and control of the growth. And the 16 ideal benefits is safety, liquidity. And remember, like, remember checking these things off. Safety, liquidity, growth, leverage, inflation protection, guarantees, free of fees, free of le- regulation, flex. It requires minimal time. It's passive cash flow. It's private. It's protected. Tax de- deductible. It's tax-free growth and tax-free distribution. Those are like the 16 ideal benefits. And I'm telling you, the very best place for your master account, the very best place to put your money is, is in a mutually owned life insurance company using a specially designed dividend paying contract. Now, if I would have told you before you ever picked up this book or started listening to this, that you would really need to add life insurance to your portfolio, you probably would have thought I was like very mistaken <laughs> you might you're like Caleb you might have to go take a nap um, or worse trying to sell you something you know because there's a lot of people out there that have agendas that will make something sound really good to sell something you need to create wealth you know re- you remember you are your greatest asset like why in the world would you put your money into life insurance to fund your why you know that doesn't make any sense everyone knows life insurance you know is the worst place to put your money and, and again guys I'm listen I'm, the reason I'm writing this is I'm I went out to pursue the best thing for you. Like it would have been a lot easier to tell you that 401ks was a solution because no one would have argued with me, but I'm coming to you and telling you that this is the best place to put your money. Um, so however, in this pursuit of like trying to figure out the best place to put your money, I also like, I just like realized that, okay, the reason why the wealthy were using life insurance was the tax benefits, but like if it's only for taxes, then it's only going to be for the ultra wealthy. There's some people that call life insurance like the rich rich man's Roth because there's no limits to how much you can put in. And, you know, in Roth IRAs, is at the time of this book, there's some kind of limits. But, like, the reason this was a rich man Roth is it worked like a Roth IRA. You didn't have to pay taxes going in. Or you had to pay taxes going in, but all the money could grow, could be used, and could be passed on tax-free. So it's just really, really powerful. Now, a specially designed dividend-paying contract with a mutually owned life insurance company is as close as you can get to the ideal financial vehicle. And I, I, I write this, and trust me, I, I believe this, um, it is the ultimate it is the ultimate inefficiency. A specially designed dividend-paying contract with a mutually owned life insurance company is as close as you get to an ideal financial vehicle. And trust me, when I say as close as you get, like the next the next closest thing, if we're going to add up all the benefits, I would maybe put the Roth IRA. Maybe a savings account if you're like more of entrepreneurial and you know that there's going to be opportunities that you seek. But Roth IRA, if you're, if you're looking for an investment, is the closest thing that you can get. And by the way, it's not even close. Okay. Now I'm going to break down this idea of when I talk about a specially designed dividend paying contract with a mutually owned life insurance, I'm going to break that down because I think it's it's really, really key, okay? So the first thing is contract, okay? We have to understand that we are entering into a contract that predates the tax code. We have to understand that we're entering into a contract that is is like, that that is like, that we have certain knowns, like that is written out. It's not some um, hypothetical thing. Like it's, it's something that's set in stone. All right, the first point that I want to make is that this is a contract. This a contract is an agreement between two parties. So you're entering into a contract where you have certain knowns like it's it's written down. Now these contracts predate the tax code. 
number one. And these contracts have been as old as like in the 1800s. A common thing that people ask me when I start showing sharing with them is like, Caleb, what happens if this happens? Or what if taxes change? And by the way, like contract law is different than tax law. And that's really important. And we have to understand that like we're entering into contract with a really awesome company. So, and I write this, I bold this in the book, the most, the more you learn about this agreement, the more evident it becomes that it is designed with the deep respect of private ownership. Um, because these contracts predate the tax code, they fall secure under contract law rather than tax law. So, it's just really important that we have to understand that number one, as I talk about this whole life insurance thing, the first thing that we're doing is we're entering into a contract. We're entering into a contract with number two, so right, number two, to a life insurance company. Now, the life insurance company has has been stable. If you take a closer look at just one of these periods, maybe the Great Depression from 1929 to 1938, um, and or if you look at like what happened in the Roaring Twenties, or if you looked at even what happened to in 2008 or 2000, like all all these companies have been super stable like mutual companies like are are solid they are because they're thinking long term they're not trying to make a quick buck here quick buck there and, and and remember they're not taking unnecessary risk your chance of loss like they are thinking long range they're thinking about your kids kids so again they are super solid so not only are you entering into a contract but you're entering in a contract with a solid life insurance company now the third benefit is it's mutually owned now, I am looking on my wall and I am seeing a Packer stock because, yes, I'm a proud Packer fan. And the Packer, Packers are the only NFL team that give you the ability to um, own part of the team, quote unquote. I'm, I'm saying quote unquote because I don't really have any financial benefits. I tell people it's the best and worst stock I own, but it's really cool, right? So think about this. In, in, this, in this type of life insurance I'm talking about, not only is it a contract, not only is it a contract with a life insurance company that's been around for many, many years, but that company, like you have ownership of that life and you get ownership of that life insurance company. It's kind of like a credit union. Like you come in and the profits go to you. That's really, really important. And if you think about it, it's like, again, like Warren Buffett, who's this super wealthy guy, he wants to buy insurance companies because they're so profitable. And he can't buy these certain insurance companies. Only the people that get these certain contracts have ownership rights uh, over this life insurance. Now, the fourth piece is dividend paying. Now, at the time of uh, reading and writing this, there's a lot of people selling all kinds of life insurance contracts. And a lot of them are not selling this special type of dividend paying contract because um, the illustrations don't look as good. Like the idea of dividend paying is when the company take, gets a dividend, when they become profitable, they pass it down to you. And Problem is, a lot of people want to maybe put their money in the market or some kind of index, and there's a lot of reasons why. And I'm not going to go into in this book why those are those are bad, but like there's a lot of reasons why people will sell you something that's not in your best interest that looks a whole lot better on paper. And you just have to trust me on this that we want to enter into a contract with a with a life insurance company that has stood the test of time. We want to make sure that we have ownership of that life insurance company. We want to make sure that the profits that the insurance company get ultimately get passed down to us. Those are things that we need to commit to ourselves. And finally. Finally, we want to make sure that it's specially designed. Now, the specially designed piece, I'm going to uh, spend a little bit of time talking on this because when we think of being specially designed, I want you to think about when, when I say life insurance, you're most, okay, I'm not going to say you, but like most people's mind go to an expense. They, they, they literally go to this idea of like, okay, insurance is an expense. So what's the minimum I have to pay? 
and when I started working at the bank and was selling life insurance, I had an app that if you came to me and said, I wanted a million dollars, I would look and try to get you the cheapest rate on the market. That's because life insurance was a total commodity. Now, who do you think determines that cheap rate? Well, it's the insurance company because ultimately they're, you're entering into a contract and you're saying, if I pay my premium, if I pay the, your money, I keep up my end of the deal. It's a unilateral contract, meaning they have to keep their end of the deal. If something happens to me, my beneficiaries, my family, whatever I want the money to go to will get passed on. And so that's how most life insurance is thought about is an, is an expense. Now, on the flip side, what if life insurance, like who determines the max amount of money that you can put? And I know by saying this, it's like, Caleb, what are you even talking about? But like, let's say, let's say the minimum that you could pay for a certain amount of death benefit was a thousand bucks. That means the, there's a company out there that would take your thousand dollars and insure a million bucks. If something happens to you, your family, your beneficiary gets a million bucks. But on the flip side, let's say that there's a company out there that, you know, you could pay $50,000 for the same amount of benefit. Okay, number one, why would you want to do that? Number two, who determines that? Well, the insurance company determines the minimum. The government, you got me right, the government determines the maximum that you can pay for the certain amount of death benefit. And why in the world does the government even care about life insurance? Well, it goes back to what I said earlier in this chapter, taxes, rich man Roth. Like there are so many tax benefits. I, I'm going to go out and say it's, if you understand how to use it, it's it's, it's like the greatest tax legal loophole that is available to us like it is amazing you guys and and we just have to understand how to leverage it so if we specially design it and we optimize how much money is being put in we're maximizing all the living benefits all the benefits that we talked about uh, early on ideal benefits i'll address next and what we're minimizing the death benefit so when you think about it we're reverse engineering the whole insurance idea so when you think of life insurance you actually think of a of a you pay something and you're getting a benefit but when we when we overpay what we're actually doing is when we're setting this up that's specially designed, we're saying, how much money can I put in for the least amount of insurance benefit? And the reason we do that is the insurance is at fixed cost that that is a drag against our money. So we want to bring that as down as low as possible. Okay. And this is really, really powerful because this, if you understand this, this is the best place to save and store your money. Now, th- I remember the 16 benefits that I talked about. Life insurance, when you put it in and you structure it and use it properly, your money is safe. You have liquidity over it. it. It's very competitive growth. You can leverage it, which is key, you guys. You can use the controlled compounding strategy. It's inflation protected. It has guarantees. It's free of, of percentage-based fees. Cost of insurance, you're actually buying a permanent asset there, but it doesn't, inc- like, and again, we can go into, I have a video that talks about this, but it's like when you purchase that permanent cost of insurance, that's not considered necessarily a fee. Now there is a dregs to your money, but that's a fixed cost. And ultimately you're buying a permanent death benefit that is going to be there someday. Free of um, percentage-based fees, free of regulation because it's under contract law. It's flexibility. If you build this properly, like it's actually flexible on how you fund it and for how long you fund it. It requires minimal time. You don't need like it's the company is the company has its staff and they're doing all those things. You don't need to be involved in that. You have passive cash flow. This represents the dividends that you get paid. It's a private contract, meaning money in your contract. Like the IRS doesn't even know how much money is in your life insurance. Like, do you know how powerful that is? Like, that's incredibly powerful as it relates to keeping our money off the radar screen of the IRS. Protection. Life insurance comes with some amazing human life protections. You are your greatest asset. Make sure you're protecting yourself. There's also different riders that come with some of these contracts that are incredible. 
your money once put in will grow tax-free, can be used tax-free. And the only thing that this doesn't have, it's, it's not tax deductible, meaning you don't get a deduction today if you put your money in there. Like a Roth, you it's after tax, but your money grows tax-free and you can use it tax-free and it gets passed on tax-free if you set it up properly. Man, like this is, this is so good. And I'm you know, I'm, this is one sit through by the way. So I'm, I want to make sure I'm being energetic here because this is, this is huge. Like you have to understand, like when I read this, my heart, when, when I, when I learned this, I was like, Oh, irony. Like I, I was put, I was like pursuing ways to like destroy life insurance because I thought life insurance was the worst place to put your money. And then it, now that I like, we are, our company specializes in helping people set this up. Like we're one of the best in the world and country for setting this stuff up. Irony behind this is pretty crazy. So you've created your master account. Any money you contribute beyond the cost of insurance is safe. It's liquid. It's guaranteed to grow. Bullet point number two, it is growing even more as you receive dividends and and you can and you can use it as collateral for a loan. So even if you use it as collateral for a loan, it's earning as dividends. There are no percentage-based fees. You have flexibility in how funds get added to it. The next part is the contract provides some inflation protection and is fairly free of regulation. Um, next point, it requires very little time to manage and can be a source of passive cash flow. Next point, it grows tax-free and can be access tax-free. And finally, it can be protected from creditors and the death benefit provides protection to your family in the event of a tragedy, which by the way, it passes through probate, uh, which means you get the money way faster and it passes on income tax-free. And this ultimately is the best way to pass on your assets. So many people, when they maybe hear about the strategy, we're, we're designed or we're, we think of like asking the question, okay, how much does it cost? Oh, this is amazing. How much does it cost? And that's like the wrong question to ask because this is literally a contract that gets customized to how you want. It's like, it's, it's literally a customizable customizable contract. So instead of saying how much does it cost, how much do you want to save? If I could give you an asset that had 15 out of the 16 ideal benefits, that was so amazing, how much would you want to save? Most people would say, I want to save as much money as possible. That's that's what I like. I save a ton, a ton of money. I save over six figures a year into life insurance, not because I want to, you know, have a fancy death benefit because it's so amazing. And I have, I have the money right now. So I want to stuff that in. And it's just like, because it gives me this 15 out of the 16 ideal benefits. And I'm not asking like, how much does it cost? I'm saying, this is so amazing. How much can I put in? And so again, that's just a big thing. We want to increase the living benefits and decrease the drags to our money. And now, now in saying that, I want you to know that I, I believe the um, death benefit's really important. I, I don't want to get misquoted for saying that death benefit's not important. I'm just saying for making this argument or quote unquote debate or this this idea that life insurance needs to put your money in, like, yes, it's a no brainer when you start adding things like the tax-free death benefit and the riders. But like, even without it, I'm saying just from a mathematical perspective, like your money, like in retirement, it makes sense. Even if you stripped every death benefit away from it, it still makes sense. And because of the death benefit, there's things in retirement that get better because of that. The point that I want to end with is if you go Google search, should I invest my money into life insurance? You're going to get a lot of mixed uh, approaches. I mean, there's there's going to there's so many people that know nothing about this. And instead of if you talk to a financial advisor that like you're like, oh, like you should try telling them this like, hey, I'm going to put all my money into life insurance and see what they say. They're going to freak out. Or if you go to someone and say, instead of saying, hey, have you heard about this concept? Can you help me set this up? Like ask them like, hey, can you explain to me how 
life insurance works and why I would want to pay all, put all my money in, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. Like why in the world would you do that? So like very few people, including the people at the home office, the, the, at the insurance company don't, they don't fully understand this. And, and, and let me just summarize it real quick. Like we are able to put our money, we're able to get a small amount of insurance. Our money is able to grow tax-free the rest of our life without any interruptions. We're able to utilize our money and, and use use a controlled compounding strategy and actually borrow against it while letting our money grow. It shows up powerfully in retirement. It protects the most important asset to ourselves. And here's another key. Can you not save more money if you have access to it? If, you, if I could show you a place to control your money, could you save more of it? The answer is, is yes. And so, no, I, I never thought that I would be utilizing life insurance. I never thought I'd be writing a book on the power of life insurance. I never thought that this would be a thing. But you, you have to realize, like, I dedicated my life to helping you. I dedicated my life helping my myself and the people that I was serving. And, and I'm just telling you what I've learned. And there's a reason why, like, over 3,800 banks have this, what's called BOLI. There's a reason why corporations have what's called COLI. There's a reason why presidents on both sides of the aisle have done this. And Congress knows about this. And the wealthy have done this. So they understand control. They understand all these benefits. And they're using it. Um, to to make massive profits. And so in, in summary, the master account is a special type of contract with a life insurance company that has stood the test of time, that pays you dividends, that is um, specially designed for, for your favor. And, and ultimately, you're the owner. You're, it's mutually owned. You get to profit off the benefits. And it, that's, that's what makes it the very best place to save and use your money throughout your life. All right, chapter 10, the controlled compounding strategy. Now, again, I'm going to kind of simply break down how I talk to people about the power of the strategy. So when, when people come to me and they talk about this idea of controlled compounding, we covered a ton so far. We talked about efficiency. We talked about compounding. We talked about control. We talked about there's so much stuff. I hope I hope you get you just get tons of value by listening to this. But in chapter 10, I want to kind of walk you through how this whole controlled company strategy when used with life insurance is so powerful. So think about the first thing is I draw a dollar sign and the dollar sign represents your money or your assets. And this money, like the first thing that we're trying to do is we're trying to get that money to compound the rest of your life. We're trying to optimize and be efficient with it. So can, can you not save more money if you have control over it? The answer is most, most of the time, yes. So you have control over it. You're not penalized for accessing it. So you can save more money. Well, that money will then grow the rest of your life. Now that money will grow tax-free. That money will grow without percentage-based fees. That money will grow without loss, like subject to losses. That money will continue to grow even when you want to utilize your money because you can actually use controlled compounding as a function to borrow against that money, letting your money grow. Remember the debtor saver and maximizer. Remember that like we want to maximize the use of our funds. And the way to do that is to keep it in a place that grows the rest of our life. And instead of taking it out and disrespecting the eighth one of the world, we're borrowing against it. So I, in my drawing, I draw a dollar pointed towards a box with an exponential curve. And under the box, I talk about, you know, tax-free growth, you know, growing without fees, growing without uh, losses and in growing without use. And then I draw three lines and those three lines, I draw whatever someone wants. So, so if I know what their why is or what they care about, like you can, you know, buy a business or you can buy a car or pay off debt or regardless of what that is. And so that's the power of the controlled compounding strategy. Now, there's a lot of questions that I get about, okay, Caleb, you're taking a loan. Like, how does that work? Like, do you have to pay the loan back or like, 
Like, how does it, how, how can the insurance company guarantee you a loan? And, and a common question I get is like, Caleb, this sounds way too good to be true. How can this work? And, and again, when I heard this, it was like, wow, that makes so much sense. But a life insurance company is the only company that can allow you to grow your money and give you a guaranteed loan with never requiring you to pay it back. And here's why an insurance company, a mutual insurance company that's playing the long game, it has a guarantee on their side. And that guarantees that you're going to die someday. Think about it. Everyone that's entered into this contract is going to die someday. So you take a loan, remember there, your cash values, the collateral. Okay. Now you're, they're still paying you on that cash value, but like there's an interest associated with that. So the way that the insurance company makes money is number one, if you surrender, at any time, if you just say, Caleb, this is crazy, I'm going to take my money. Let's say, for example, you have $100,000 that you have in your account, you've taken out a $20,000 loan, you'd be able to walk with $80,000. Okay, so they get to keep your $20,000. And, and that's including the interest. Okay, so they didn't lose their money there. Uh, scenario number two is you pay them back, like you actually pay them back on your terms over, let's say five years, two years, one year, let's say something crazy happens, you lump some of your money or maybe over 30 years, regardless of what that is, they make their money because they're earning interest. But the third aspect is what if you have an outstanding debt or loan against your money, and you die? Well, they're on the hook to pay a death benefit, and they're just going to reduce the death benefit by how much money you have outstanding. For instance, if you, in the scenario of having a hundred thousand, twenty thousand dollar loan, you have a million bucks, you'd get a million bucks minus twenty thousand. What is that? Nine hundred eighty thousand dollars. You'd get passed on, not a million, because of that loan. So they're really they're guaranteed not to lose their money. Now, again, this is super powerful because think about that. You you literally are profiting. You're like on both sides. Like you're profiting on the dividends at the company, but you also have access to that capital, and your money continues to grow. And especially if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an investor, if you're someone that sees opportunity, or if you're in debt, or you need your need for money is huge. Think about how powerful this is. You can actually utilize your capital throughout your life. Hopefully, get some kind of ROI positive thing that happens from that activity. Hopefully, like we understand this idea of asset-based activity, but our money is continuing to grow every single day for the rest of our life. The reason I'm so excited about that is that's incredible, you guys. Like, that's powerful. And so, like, I just want to go through different examples. Like, there are, are people that use this money and they they want to pay it back right away. So they might, like, use their money for a quick um, short-term loan. They flip it back and they repay themselves. They repay back the insurance company and they might have to pay, like, two months of interest. But then there's also people that, you know, want to pay equal amounts over over the same time this could be like you know buying a car like over a five-year time period you're going to buy that car and and so you have money in your cash value you buy that car and over five years out of your cash flow that you're saving you're paying the insurance company back all the while your money that you were going to take money out and pay cash is growing for you you know periodic lump sums this could be like like you flipping a house and you know you you know investing in buying a house and then whenever you sell it maybe 18 months later you could put put that money back into the insurance company all while your money's continuing to grow now there is a strategy that i wrote about this and it's um it's called delayed repaying and this is this is really there's some caution to this because what i'm what what i'm essentially saying is there's there may be some reason for you not to pay back that interest in the in the short term. And and again, I'm saying this with um, asterisk, beware, make sure you're working with someone, make sure you understand how the contract works, because these contracts are a little bit different. But it, let's say, let's say your policy is going to be fine, like it's solid, you have enough equity where no loss of like lapsing your policies affected. And let's say you're paying 5% interest on your money. Let's say you're investing your money at a 
at a at a 13% ROI. Like and and you feel good about this. So here's the risk. 13% how are you going to get that each year? But let's say it's all it's like guaranteed or, you know, pretty you feel really good about it. Would it make sense for you to sell off or pay off or cancel that 13% to pay back 5%? No. So in there's some ways where you may not want to pay back. You need to do your due diligence and make sure that everything's solid, but I have certain clients that aren't actually paying back their loan. Not be they know what's going on. They know that the life insurance is powerful, but their the activity that they're earning with their interest is so so much better than than what they're you know with their outstanding loan that that it's kind of a it's it's a no brainer. Now the reason I I'm cautious about this is this could be oversold. It could be there's there's remember risk is your chance of loss. If that thirteen percent it might look good now, but what if that gets wiped out? Like there's again, we have to we can't turn off our brain, but mathematically, um, there's no arbitrage when we do do this strategy. Like we're not necessarily making more money in our accounts than what we're paying. But the benefit of this, and this needs to sink in, the benefit is your money's growing the rest of your life. Like the reason why compound interest lifetime is so powerful is you're not just compounding your money in year two, you're compounding your money in six year 62. And that's like super, super powerful. So you get that and you get to access capital. And so when you borrow your own, when you borrow against your own money, make sure that the activity that you use, you can justify by saying, this is either going to bring value to myself and the people that I care about, or it's actually investment wise going to get, get you a good rate of return. And the reason, the, the example I'll use is when I went to Guatemala, the first time that I used my plan was going on a missions trip to Guatemala. And by the way, I didn't make any money going on this trip, but I remember being on the plane and being like, oh my goodness, I am living the life that I've always wanted to live. Like I, I didn't want to wait till to retirement to go on a missions trips. Like I, uh, one of my missions is to help people and I'm literally doing that. My money's going to grow the rest of my life. Yes. It cost me something that year, that interest that I ended up paying back, but like my money's growing for me the rest of my life. That's really powerful. And so, yes, there's, that's an example of me not earning actually an interest. Like that's, that's me. That's an example of me not earning a rate of return, but I valued that mission strip more than the cost of borrowing that, which is 5%. And my money, by the way, is efficiently growing the rest of my life. It's again, it's again, it's a tough concept. We're not taught this in school, but it's like when you can bring this lifetime aspect, you're really going to be unstoppable. Right. The last chapter, you guys. Chapter 11 is the only and asset. And I write in bold, I say the master account is the only financial vehicle available today that allows your money to grow and be used at the same time. So I have a dollar sign with a, so I have a dollar that has one arrow pointed to save and another arrow pointed to use. If you understand the power of being able to save and use your money at the same time, that's super, super significant. So I write this, I said, the and asset enables you to earn uninterrupted compound growth the rest of your life and utilize your capital to other things. Um, you can earn compound interest and you can buy vehicles and real estate and trade stocks and invest in private placements and start a business and engage in any profitable activities. And I talk about when I was 19 years old and going to Guatemala and and like understanding like, yes, like I encourage you that regardless of where you are, we need to not turn off our brain, but like Guatemala changed my life. And that was because I used my policy to make a difference in other people's lives. And my money was still going to grow for the rest of my life, but it was the most efficient way to go to Guatemala. If you're reading this and, and going to be hitting retirement, the and asset is awesome because think about the two risks to retirement is is losses and taxes. 
and losses in taxes are are like not going away. But if you can eliminate that and create a massive legacy, like there are so many, and I and I have a course on this, but like there are so many strategies that I'm not even gonna get into, but that can maximize your pensions, that can maximize your the way that you borrow, spend down your assets. There's the, even using your plan directly, like there's so many benefits in retirement that just being tax-free and keeping your money, like having it safe is super beneficial, but it's not just safe. Your money's guaranteed to grow the rest of your life. So that's powerful. And then um, it really makes sense if you can make money. Like, remember when we go back to the control cost, when I talked about, you know, if controlling your capital at 5%, you want to make sure that you can earn greater than 5%. Like this needs to be important because there's people that are talking about the strategy that are saying, oh, you'll get wealthy by going on vacation. You'll get wealthy by going to Guatemala. You'll get wealthy by buying a car. And that's a half truth because it's, again, again, it's the most efficient because your money's growing long term. But by buying that car or going on vacation doesn't make you wealthy. It's, it may be the most efficient way to do it, but what creates wealth is when you borrow against your money and you, you're paying 5% and you're earning 12. It's 140%, you know, on your money because your money's still growing. Remember, it's going to grow regardless. But if you're going to borrow that money, if you're going to take that cost of capital, try to see what you can do to um, make more money. And so here's a question. What would that activity be? If you had control of your money and you had access to money at 5%, what would what could you do? What activity could you do that could earn a greater rate of return than 5%? And I just want to end with this, man, if you're an entrepreneur, think about the power of the and in your own life. Like think about being able to save your money, investing in the most important investment, which is your business and yourself. And like you get to save up money, which is probably an entrepreneur's biggest dilemma is just keeping that money, but you're able to invest in the things that you care about. If you're an investor and you're, you're, you like crypto, if you like real estate, if you like those, whatever you're specialized in investing, why don't you run it through a policy? And not only is it amazing, it's, it's just a better long-term savings account. It's a better for your state. It's better for your compound growth. It's better for like even, even protecting the most important asset, which is yourself, but it's not prohibiting you to invest. I kind of call this the investment enhancer because it really enhances any kind of investment long-term high income um if you're if you were like into you know wanting to put your money away and not have to pay future taxes this might be the only thing that you you can do it's the rich man's roth the the next one is if you're inexperienced if you're inexperienced i hope you understand that like regardless of where you are like you can start somewhere you can start somewhere and and i just want you to understand that like hopefully there's some things that you took out maybe this strategy might not be the right thing for you today but hopefully you get this idea of opportunity cost and you can get to a place where you can do that maybe you're experienced if you're experienced i hope you learned something if you didn't and you listen to this whole thing i'm sorry but i um i hope you learned something because there's so many uh, money you know, things that were built, like there's so many nuggets in here. Again, I can't take credit for it. I've just learned, it's just a combination of all the things that I've learned. If you're in retirement, this is going to be powerful in retirement. If you're family and you're wanting to save your money and you want to still be present in your family, this is going to show you the way to do both. If, you, if you're college planning, I said this earlier, but like save your money in a place that's not just going to get spent at college, but give your, have an account that literally gives for college and your future home and your purchases and your need for money is great. Don't kill the compound and access to capital. And finally, if you're in debt, if you feel like you're drowning in debt and you still feel like you want to do the best thing for the future, you can literally do both. You don't have to choose. You don't have to choose between someday in the future and now in the present. Now, I'm going to add this because I think it's it's really important is, okay, Caleb, you talked about all the benefits of this and you didn't really address the downfalls. And I want to take some time and address the two 
big issues that I see in when when we do this strategy. Because when we set this up, we every other thing that you'll read on the internet is like, oh, like that's not really valid. The two things that are valid is this: not everyone qualifies health wise. So you may be listening to this, and if you've had cancer recently, or you're super unhealthy, or super super overweight, this may not be for you, but. You can still take advantage of the strategy. You just need to find someone else to put the insurance benefit on and you can have ownership. So you have to take a medical, like this is not like something that you can just sign up on the internet for. You you can't even do this on your own. You actually have to work with someone who specializes to set these things up. So the first thing is like not everyone qualifies. The second thing is like, if you're like, by overfunding this, you get early cash value in the early years to use. Like for my plan, I got, you know, 65% of my money access accessible the first year. And it takes a couple of years to break even. And again, if you're, if you're thinking long-term, like this is lifetime compounding, like it's not a problem, but like there is, if you put your money in a savings account, like let's say you have a hundred thousand dollars, you put your money in a savings account, you'll have a hundred thousand dollars. Now it's not going to earn much, but you still have a hundred thousand dollars. And when you take that money out, you're actually spending it, but you still have a hundred thousand dollars. If you put your money in the master account of the end asset, you're not going to have access to all that hundred thousand. Now, long term, you're gonna their true rate of return is gonna be three, four, maybe five percent tax free, which is an equivalent to something bigger, right? But you're not gonna have dollar for dollar access in the first couple of years. And so that might look like if you're if you're a business owner and you're leveraging every single dollar in your life, number one, that's stressful. Um, but number two, like you might just have to save less money. Or there are some people that are into like, they get so caught up on the first year not having access to all their money that they put in that they don't do this. And I just look at like, making, seeing my money exponentially grow the rest of my life, still having control over it, being able to use it and have it still being able to grow and say, I'm okay with not having dollar for dollar access in the first couple of years. Again, it's not that big of a deal, but I, I, I hope in, in listening to this, you guys, that I, I want what's best for you. And I want to like help you understand this, but I want you to take advantage of this because I know that this, this can change your life. And so in, in summary, the way that like, and I want to take some time and actually share, share this with you is so Education is key. That's why I have a YouTube. That's why I have a podcast. That's why I wrote a book. That's why I'm, <laughs> that's why I'm, I spent a lot of time on a, on a Sunday to read this, read this to you or speak this to you because I want people to understand this. I, I'm looking at my mission statement on the wall right now. It's, it's to help people see and reach their highest potential. I, I want that badly for you. And, and I also know that like education is a key part because we're shedding a light on this, but implementation is everything. Like implementation is the most important thing that you can do. Implementation is what actually helps you get the result. Implementation is working with someone that can come alongside you, build your blueprint, help you build this and asset, help you be efficient, help you compound your money, help you be in control of your money. And I'm getting excited because like we've literally as a company have been doing this for a couple of years now. And we work with people in, in multiple states and we like I'm speaking around the country and I'm realizing, man, like the people that uh, like support me the most might not even know what we actually do at Better Wealth. We help people set this up. We help people maximize their efficiency and take advantage of everything that I talked about in the book. Because I'll tell you, my fear in writing this is people are going to use my book. People have used my book to sell people things that aren't in their best interest. And and so I, so if you're reading this, if you've read this book, if you're listening to this, or you're listening to the podcast, I just want to let you know, if you want to take action, and the best way to take action is go to betterwealthblueprint.com. That's betterwealthblueprint.com. And I 
this is where I have a presentation that you can skip because you've already listened to this whole book, but you can watch my presentation if you want. But you will have the opportunity to purchase a one-time, you know, purchase of a blueprint. And the blueprint is what, what, how we come alongside you and we get all the information on where you want to go. Like we get really clarity on what your why is. We have, we get clarity on your efficiency. Even, even in, even in listening to this, you could have forgot the beginning of the importance of, of your why, but we're going to get clear on your why. We're going to get clear on your efficiency. We're going to, we're going to make sure that we can, you know, maximize your long-term growth and set up the right kind of savings plan. But we're also going to show you how to best use it. And there are hundreds of ways to, to design these. And we want to design this in your best interest, but we also want to design a plan that's in your best interest. And we want to help you get the result that you want to get. Remember the ROR, return on result. That's what we're all about at Better Wealth. And so if you go to betterwealthblueprint.com, you'll have the opportunity to actually get a blueprint and actually get help implementation. And we don't just believe in education. Like we have people on staff, whether it's me, whether it's someone else, are going to come alongside you and help you implement these powerful strategies. You guys, in marketing, they, they, in marketing, they talk about this idea of like, of, of saying like, oh, this is a value of this. And we have an e-course that is included with this. And it's a value of a thousand bucks. And it's a, the implementation is a value of 10,000 thousand dollars or you know and i just want to be real with you i'm not going to tell you that but the value and of getting the result and taking action could mean millions of dollars because it might change the way that you think about your life and you'll have more control over your life which will give you an opportunity that you never thought like if you would have told me three years ago that i would be running a company and have clients in over 27 states and speak and have a team and you know have a demand for uh, and that, another book and I'm, we're in the process of making a documentary. And like, if you'd have told me that, I would have thought you were crazy. And it, it was a journey, but it was because of learning some of these things that I realized that I was my greatest asset and I was devaluing myself indirectly. And, and so part of that is the reason like I'm creating wealth today because I get some of that stuff. Again, I'm the, the way that we can truly help you is if you go to the Better Wealth Blueprint and let us come alongside you and tailor make your own blueprint. And it may mean one of these and assets. It might not mean an and asset for you right now. But what I can tell you is we're going to come alongside you and help you get the results that you want to get. And so uh, if you're still listening to this, I encourage you to go to betterwealthblueprint.com go get the blueprint and start a journey, start a process that's literally going to change your life. So I also just want to thank you so much for listening to this. I really, really appreciate you guys. If you're, if you're listening to this on the podcast, I really encourage you to go and give our podcast a five-star review um, or <laughs> review it. It doesn't have to be five stars. I would, I would like it if it was five stars. Um, go and share this with people. Like we're on a mission to impact and ensure a million lives by 2025. We can't do that alone. Like we cannot do that alone. We need your help. And um, I just want to thank you again uh, for listening to this, sharing the message, helping us out. And any, 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 anything that you can do, like encourage people to start taking back control of their, their, their life and, and ask people what they would do if money wasn't an issue. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. Make sure you press subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast player.